0: Well, we know fantasy baseball is often a mind game, but how might psychology affect your player choices? I'll ask Ian Kahn about that and a whole lot more, next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now.
0: (laughs) And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 22nd. It's show number 29 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Ian Kahn from the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast, discussing psychology in fantasy baseball, his successful partnerships in the NFBC main event and other leagues, how to respond when you overdo a fab bid, dynasty and keeper leagues, and a few prospects in the recent MLB draft as well as his boons and banes. We'll also have our market watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including changes in the San Francisco infield and pitching staff, a couple of IL returnees in Philadelphia, some second-half breakout possibilities, and a positive update for Jacob deGrom. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Trevor Story going to the I.L., a change behind the plate in Minnesota, we've got some breakout possibilities in the junior circuit, and perhaps a final curtain for a veteran reliever. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Arizona first baseman Leandro Sedeño. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about the changing environment of Major League Pitching. It's another Big Friday Full Edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The second half is underway. We gotta talk some baseball. All right, it's not the second half, it's more like the second 42% or the last 42% to be more accurate, but whatever it is, it's underway. And so are we in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Ian Kahn from the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Ian, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. I believe this is your first time.
2: It is my first time and I'm so, so very grateful to you. Um, Patrick, I, I, as I, as I told you, I used to, when I first started playing the game, I, I would take long drives in my car when I was living in Los Angeles and I would listen to you and, and sometimes just sit in the car for an extra 30 or 45 minutes to hear the end of the show. So it's, it's a real thrill uh, to be on here with you.
0: Well, if I'd known, I'd have said, Hey, Ian, how you doing <laughs> on there? Um, so you lived in Los Angeles. I didn't know that. Do you live in the New York area now?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my family and I moved out to Los Angeles in 2000 and, uh, gosh, 11. And then I was doing a TV show, which brought me back to New York because it shot on the East coast and closer to both myself and my wife's family. Uh, and then, so by that time we we had one child when we moved out there and then we had our second child living in Los Angeles and then ended up back in, uh, back in New York. So yeah, back home in New York.
0: How long have you been playing fantasy baseball?
2: You know, I started. My younger brother uh, called me up and he said, "Hey, there's going to be this fantasy baseball. I'm playing this fantasy baseball league. Do you want to play? You played baseball. You love baseball. Do you want to play?" It was like 2000 and I'm going to say 2009. Uh, Wait, no, I can tell you exactly because our first child was born in 2009, so it was 2009 because my son was born on May 5th, and uh, that first (laughs) when he was being born, I was playing my brother in this head-to-head. Categories League, which is what it was, and Ian Kinsler hit a home run on the Sunday night game, and uh, we ended up—I ended up winning the week—and and as my son was being born, and I thought that that was really kind of cool. And again, yeah, kind of now that I think about it, it was kind of cool. um So it's 2009, and I was—I don't remember where I was, but I wasn't available for the draft. And at the time, I was like, I don't know. And my brother's like, Don't worry about it; they'll auto draft you. So I ended up with a team. I remember this. I forget who my first round pick was, but I remember that my second round pick was Matt Kemp. And my third round pick was Justin Upton. And this was back when Matt Kemp and Justin Upton were really, really good fantasy baseball players with great power and great speed. So I ended up having this great team. It was all like guy value guys, right? Because it was being auto-picked. So it was the top guy left. <laughs> and I ended up winning the league in my first year. And I was like, this is kind of fun. And I didn't even have to draft. So that was my uh, that was my first experience. And yeah, just I just remember every day waking up and going, "Wow, Matt Kemp hit a home run and stole a base again. Justin Upton <laughs> hit a home run and stole a base again. This is good. I like this." So that was that was sort of that was my first year of playing fantasy baseball.
0: What formats do you play now, and which ones do you like the most?
2: You know, I play a lot of different formats. So I play dynasty leagues. I, I've been playing dynasty league since two thousand and thirteen. Two thousand twelve was my first year in a dynasty league. I took over. Um, Andrea, Lenny Melnick's wife's team, Andrea, in a in an industry dynasty league years ago. I mean, so many years ago, and took over this team and rebuilt it over. And it was sort of the beginning of my love affair with dynasty baseball. Um, and then, so a lot of dynasty, um, uh, some keeper leagues as well. And then this year, I've just fallen in love with redraft in a totally different way. So I'm playing in AL labor, NL tout wars, and in the main event. Um and also TGFBI, which has been a bit of a struggle this year, I must say, and I don't understand. Um, but uh, the, the the joy of uh, redraft is, I don't know, it's really hitting me this year. Uh, so so I would say, you know, AL Labor has was when I first got invited into that league, it became my top priority because I was like, all right, I'm playing with the best of the best. Same with when I started playing in Tout Wars, but this year in NL Tout Wars, I'm having a lot of fun. And sometimes, and I love Steve Gardner, Steve and I partner in a league in Ron Chandler's Dynasty League together. uh, And I love labor, love being a part of it. I do feel a little bit bound in by the rules from time to time with AL labor. Whereas with Tout Wars, while there's still rules that kind of bind you a bit, you still can reserve people. (laughs) So you still can like build a pitching staff on the fly or pick up minor league guys. So I I think I'm really enjoying that format right now. Also the main event. I have to say it's been um, I've always avoided playing in high money leagues because I didn't want to turn the game into that. I thought I always have so much fun playing the game that if a lot of money got involved, it might turn into something more intense. Um, It was really challenging. It's really fun. Got a great partner who I do it with uh, split the cost with and split the work with really. And, uh, so yeah, I, I would say I, I, but, but, but I must say the, the only leagues for me, and I know I've, I've listened to you talk uh, sometimes about only leagues and the frustration of it. And I respect that. And I understand that. Um, but I do enjoy having to figure out, you know, is your mean Mercedes who I just picked up last night for $21 and, and only going to be of value over the course of the next four days. So I can flip him in a trade along with Kevin Newman for, to a team that needs power and a middle infielder for this other piece that I could use. You know, I really like thinking about the game in that level of detail. So I like that, I also like playing. I like all formats. I, I really do enjoy it all.
0: I love that aspect of being able to make trades for categories and stuff like that. When I started playing a long, long time ago, and there's an origin story that I've told on the show here, and I don't want to go through it again, but it was, it basically was, I was Clint Eastwood in play misty for me and, one thing led to another. And I ended up in this league and the guy who recruited me into the league and I both single at the time, just, we used to sit down for hours and talk about the theory of it and the category management and how to make trades to, that are going to help both sides, but especially you and how to push another team past the team you're, you're chasing so yeah. that you gain sort of by proxy. It, it was a, that's what really hooked me on the game was having those conversations with the with uh, my fellow league mate and a guy I used to work with, and his name was Perry Nias. I don't know what he's doing these days. He's a, he used to be a radio announcer in Regina, Saskatchewan. That's where I was living at the time going to school. And gosh, it was fun talking about baseball with him and talking about fantasy baseball with him. And I think that aspect of it, I actually enjoyed as much or maybe even more as the actual competition. It's weird. Uh, I've been looking at your Tout National League team and it looks like you got a lot of former top prospects that maybe didn't pan out originally, but they seem to be coming into their own.
2: Yeah, that's, and and I just want to mention one guy who, when I first started playing the game, I did a lot of that talking with, which is Tim McLeod, who is a friend of both of ours and, you know, sitting and talking the game with Tim McLeod and we we shared a dynasty team for a number of years as well. It was just, uh, it it is the joy of it. I mean, it's sort of so many, I've got a lot of friends in my life from a long time, but a lot of my, a lot of people who I find myself spending time on the phone with these days are fantasy baseball friends. Uh, and it's really, it's, it's really very enjoyable. Yes. In the NL team that that is part of the value of playing in dynasty baseball is you really get a holistic view of all of these players and you get to sort of look at them from when they're 19 years old and what people are thinking about them back then, and then use that to sort of see where they are in their journey. Right. As an actor, I always look at uh, a character that uh, this, I've taken a sabbatical from acting for a little while. I may go back at some point, but you look at the character and you sort of figure out where they are in their journey. That's how, what I do with, with uh, baseball players. And yeah, you're right. So guys like, uh, key guys this year are like jerks and Profar, which I got for $3 you know, for me, that's the former number one prospect in baseball right there. So the idea that he may get playing time on, in the, on this Padres team to get him for three has been very, very valuable. Another guy is Taiwan Walker, right? So he was great last year until he wasn't great last year. And there was a period last year where he wasn't so great. But before that period, he was really, really good. And where we are now, I, I was in the auction with him. I had a number in my head. And I, you know, somebody bid three. I bid four, and I was like, "I'll take that. I'll take that. I want that pedigree. I'm always looking for that pedigree." Same with Gavin Lux. Same with Travis Darnell. You know, he was good last year, but I can't get it out of my head that for a number of years he was a top twelve, top fifteen prospect in baseball. You know, I, I I think those things matter. I think those things come back to pay off quite a bit. So yeah, it's it's very much a, a way that I play the game.
0: It reminds me of the Baseball HQ. Uh, ma- mantra, if you want to call it that, of the 10 steps from f- of prospect development, which starts off with failure and works its way up to superstardom. I think it's named after Alex Rodriguez, actually. It's interesting that you talk about uh, dynasty leagues or just multi-year leagues in general, I suppose. I think I was a better player in, in only leagues, in single-year leagues, because I played in multi-year leagues. And as you said, you get a much wider perspective of career paths, where, where players are in their, in their overall sort of the journey that you're taking, that they're taking through their careers. And it helps you identify those possibilities, as you said. And unfortunately I I just found that, um, multi-year leagues were taking up so much time and I had a young family and stuff like that, that I couldn't justify it, especially because I was doing fantasy baseball related work, which was, uh, enough of a bone of contention in the household that I just c- couldn't fit it in basically. And I really wish I could. And now that I'm retired, I think I'm probably going to try to find my way into a, a dynasty league. Actually, I prefer Keeper. And we'll talk about that later. Before we get on to, uh, the regular, uh, part of the inter, he's <sighs> what a terrible, <clears throat> before we get on with the regular part of the interview, Ian, uh, w- Have you noticed anything this year in your own leagues or through the media, any trends or situations you think drafters just might be missing?
2: I think the thing that I was missing for a long time is, uh, and we talked a little bit about this right before we got on air, is the value of value. (laughs) The value, and uh, Ariel Cohen, who is a good friend of mine. Uh, and I like to do impressions of on a on a pretty regular basis with him, and and on my own show that I do on the Athletic Fantasy Baseball uh, podcast. Uh, he he, t- he talks a lot about the value of players that aren't really flashy, and having as many of those guys on your team as possible. And I still think that people are missing that. Uh, I know I miss that for a long time in my career. But in watching how team what teams do well and what teams don't do well. Uh, at bats and runs, man, at bats and runs, they, they tend to tell you so much. So, uh, but other than that, I, I think it's, uh, I think the, 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 the live ball versus the dead ball has been playing quite a bit over the course of the season. I, it feels like the live ball is coming back. Um, but it's been, it's been, uh, it's, it's been a great season. I mean, it's, I think that the fact that we, almost didn't have a season this year has made this season even more sweet to be able to watch the game. And for me, my favorite part of fantasy baseball is the, is not even the box scores, but reading the lineups every day. Like that is something I do every day at like four 30 in the afternoon when all the lineups come up and just being able to read playing time, who's getting the playing time and then starting to think about it from the manager's perspective. Well, why is he playing? did he do? What did he do last night? Oh, he had that one double in a big spot. Well, they're going to give him another shot. And then trying to think along with the manager to then see who's going to get that playing time, which in only leagues is absolutely critical. And I think in all leagues is really very important.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, Gene McCaffrey calls them boring veterans. the, The kind of guys that slip through your league because they don't, they're not really flashy is the term you used. And I think it's appropriate because a lot of fantasy managers are looking for flashy players, big name players, because that's exciting. It's part of the game to try to get players on your team that you look forward to watching to on TV. And you know, Robbie Grossman is not one of those guys, let's be honest. But you know, uh, last year he was a real helpful guy to have on your team because it was $2 or whatever, or $3 in the end game. And, and you know, you knew he was going to play, he might steal you some bags and he did, and, and he might hit you some home runs and he did that, he was a terrific guy. And those boring veterans, I think, are are overlooked and and shouldn't be, by most fantasy managers. Uh, I guess if enough of us are all looking for the boring veterans, then they'll get priced up and the value will vanish. But uh, I think that hasn't most of, yet.
2: That hasn't happened yet.
0: <laughs> that's true. I, I think most of us agree, Ian, that different league formats require different strategic and tactical approaches. But after an email you sent me, I, I started wondering about the psychological aspects as well. And maybe psychological isn't the right term. Certainly my daughter, the psych major, will say so in the extremely unlikely event she's listening to this pod. But how do you think psychology affects some aspects of the game, like which players fantasy managers choose?
2: Uh, Well, I think psychology for me is everything and makes the game so much more interesting to watch. So when I'm watching baseball, I'm not just watching the ball and I'm not just watching like the action. I'm watching what happens between the pitches. And how the players are talking to themselves about how they play the game. Right? So there are certain players that I look at as I watch them and I get a taste for them. And as soon as I see a guy, a guy who I was really high on early and has been pretty helpful to me uh, in two of my major leagues in NL tout. And in the main event is uh, Spencer Strider. And I was watching at the beginning of the season, it was like April 10th. And I saw, I, I was trying to find who was the Garrett Whitlock of the national league at that time. I was like, I was, I was just so in love with the idea that Garrett Whitlock was a valuable piece in, in fantasy baseball. Cause he's going to give you three innings. He's going to give you, um, he's going to give you those three innings. He's going to give you six strikeouts or something like that and really help your ratios. So I was trying to look for somebody on the NL side that had that same thing. So I saw Strider and what I do is I go to the MLB app. Do you have the MLB app, Patrick? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So I pretty much try to watch everything that I can during time off from work. I try to watch as much as I can. Um, in, if I see something, I go back to, cause they put the highlights on and they'll say Spencer Strider's five strikeouts. So I'll go back and I'll watch those five strikeouts. And in those, you know, it's like 48 seconds of content. I'm seeing pitches And not only am I seeing pitches, I'm seeing how the player is thinking about himself. I remember back when David Robertson was the closer for the New York Yankees. It was right after Mariano retired. And it was like his first game that he was closing. And he finishes, he closes a game, and he takes the deepest breath like, oh, God, thank God, you know. And I went, this guy's not going to last here very long in that spot. Because he didn't really have the mindset for the job. When I was watching Strider pitch, I don't know if if you've had a chance to watch much Strider. He he is up there like he is the king of the world. He does this little spin thing that he does when he strikes a guy out. It's a little bit like a Chapman, which I don't particularly like when Chapman does the staring because I find that a little bit like, you know, you're you're showing up the other team. I, I don't love that. But something about Strider and that little spin, it's just like there is a man who has tremendous confidence. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that since Taiwan Walker is another example of it a guy who looks like things are going to go well for him. And one thing that I've learned in life is whatever you think is going to happen in your life is typically what's going to happen in your life. If you think you're going to, as an actor, if you think you're going to make it, you can make it. If you think you're never going to make it, you will not make it. It's absolutely true on the baseball field for me as well. So there's talent and we're looking for talent and I'm looking for talent, but I'm also looking at what's going on in your mind. And so that's the psychological part of the game that keeps it so interesting for me. (laughs) Like Anthony Rizzo, Aaron Judge, I'm a Yankee fan. And so I watch the Yankees with my family. I watch the Yankees pretty much every game. Watching Anthony Rizzo, he just believes things are going to go well for him. Aaron Judge, the same thing. Watch these guys. I, I, I really try to tell people on, on the show I get to do with Derek Van Riper and Nando Rafino Under the Radar, I, I, I talk about it all the time. It's like, really watch the guys. And then people say, well, what do you think of this player? And I have an opinion. on Like, one of the guys I like watching the least in baseball, is Michael Kopech? I just I never and and I own him in a dynasty league. I own him in AL uh, AL labor this year, but uh, the self talk that he has hurts his stuff, and I think uh, I think it's an undervalued from my perspective. It certainly helps
0: me. Yeah, there's another White Sox pitcher, Lucas Giolito, who, when he had his big recovery, sensational recovery season, a lot of that was attributed to him going to uh, a counselor or a um, psychological trainer, if you will, to be just better at that aspect of his game, more confident in his, Mm -hmm. in his ability and all that kind of stuff. And I think it matters. You know, when you were talking about Strider, a guy that. Has a personality that that I think is attractive in that same way as uh, Alec Manoa, in Toronto. He well, just looks um, like he's having a lot of fun out there. First of all, but I think that sort of fun, happy-go-lucky uh, presentation, yes, is masking a lot of fire. Like he likes he likes striking guys out. He likes winning games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it made. Uh, The MLB app or any kind of media, but there was a game. Uh, two weeks or three weeks ago or so when he was, he was sailing through whoever he was playing. It was the eighth inning and he'd only thrown about 88 pitches or something. I like remember that. the
2: game. Yep. I remember that game. And
0: they took him out and he was mad. Yep. They showed him in the dugout is. and he was arguing with uh, then manager Charlie Montoyo and the pitching coach and he was like insisting that he should get to go back out there and finish the game because he wanted to. And I think that's a really interesting element in a player that if we can find it and see it and capture it, it's uh, another tick mark a box on your list of, do I want this guy?
2: It is, it is not just a tick box for me. It is a primary for me because I'm going to raise that guy's price in the auction room. Manoa is, I mean, I, my partner, Rob Mershak and I, uh, <laughs> I can't go into it too much about the main event, but, uh, I, I just, I love Manoa. From the bottom of my heart, I remember his first game pitching for the Yankees, and I'm watching him. It's a day game. His mom's in the stands cheering away. I'm watching, him, and I'm like, who is this kid? Now, look, he's got the pedigree. He's the 11th pick in the draft for Toronto. Um, Zola got him in XFL, which is just heartbreaking for me because I would, I just, I, I love that pitcher. I love that because of exactly what you're saying. And Soto, now, obviously, Juan Soto was Ted Williams, and everyone's talking about Juan Soto this week as they should. But I'm telling you, that moment where he's looking out at the pitcher and his feet are shifting back and forth, it's because he's like, Come and get me, dude. Where yeah, do you get a load of me. That plays in my boons later. The little sneak peek, Jameson Tyone is a boon. No, he's a bane. He's not a boon, he's a bane. And it's because of what is his self talk. I mean, look, as an actor, I look at what are the parents of this character when I played George Washington. I got deeply into his relationship with his mother because to understand the human, you got to understand what the parents did first. Right? So I'm looking at Jameson and Tyone. And I'm not going to make any aspersions because I don't know his parental history, but there's something in him that does not think it's going to go well for him. And if you notice over the course of games, he tends to go well for like three, four innings. And then Kind of the wheels fall off. You you compare him, and then my son talks about Wandi Peralta always looking like he has to go to the bathroom. <laughs> he's like, he's just always looks like he got to get to the bathroom. It's not bathroom. He just has anxiety. You marry that, or not marry, you, you show the opposition of that with Nestor Cortez. Nestor Cortez believes all five foot 11, 195 pounds of him, thinks that he's a star, and he is. Because he thinks he is. So the guys that I enjoy watching, the the guys who I always try to get after, Tim Anderson, I'm always trying to get Tim Anderson. Does he make people angry with his, you know, bat flips and stuff? Yeah, he does. Does he also believe that he's the best player on that field at that time? That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. When I was playing the game, that's what I wanted on my team. I want the guys, the same guys – That I want on my team, I want on my fantasy team. The guys that I don't want, I look at pitchers and I say, could I hit this guy? He's a pretty good baseball player. Could I hit this guy or would this guy just, no, I can't. I could never touch that guy. That's the guy I want on my team. If I look at a guy who I think has a weak psychological makeup, I'm like, I can beat that guy. That's what I'm looking for. It's a big part of my game. Big part.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ian Kahn from The Athletic and The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast, kind of subtitled Under the Radar. Did that used to actually be the name of the podcast?
2: Yeah, it, it, yes, yes. It was originally Nando and I were going to do it alone and it was going to be called Nando in the general. Um, and then when we started, it like, all right, we're going to do it. We're going to call it Under the Radar. We're going to find Under the Radar guys. And then Derek was uh, Derek Van Riper was just our producer at first. And was like, well, we have one of the best fantasy minds in the world just being our producer. Why don't you chime in here? And uh, it, it makes it a really, uh, really fun show. Uh, we, we have a really great time. Cause Nando and I are a little, little a little off the wall, not as a little off the wall. I'm a little, you know, a little crazy too. And I always sort of talk about our show is that like, uh, Nando and I are like the meat and the cheese and the toppings on a sandwich. And then DVR comes in and he's the ciabatta bread. He's like the best bread in the world that keeps us all together and keeps the show going. But yeah, so we were, we started as under the radar and then we were the, the, along with rates and barrels, the first two, I think, uh, fantasy baseball shows. And then there were more fantasy baseball shows added. And so now it's called the athletic fantasy baseball podcast. Our show is Wednesdays typically pretty much. And I'll occasionally do one of the Tuesday shows or Thursday shows it looks like starting in August. But the the Wednesday show with Nando and Derek is uh, about as much fun as I can have.
0: I used to do some radio work in Canada for the CBC and the CBC is a big operation. And it's not like going into a private radio thing where you just kind of off the cuff it. It's all very produced. And I remember the, the one segment I used to do weekly at CBC was about entertainment and movies and stuff like that. And, uh, the smartest person in the entire thing was the producer. And, uh, the woman who I was working with. And I used to say to each other as we were walking out the door, you know, if she ever decides to go on the air, we're finished <laughs> because she's like 20 times smarter than either of us and way better at doing radio. And sh- sure enough, she ended up being a really big radio star in Canada. So it was interesting that producers play that role as Derek does for you guys and yeah, does a great right. job. Also, well, he's terrific yeah. on the, uh, he's a terrific speaker and he, and he gets his ideas across really smoothly.
2: Yeah, he really does. I mean, he has, uh, I, I'm fortunate that m- to my two partners are two of the best voices in fantasy baseball, just in terms of pure, you know, Nando's all here and, you know, it's all like this. And, and Derek has this great, you know, great bass baritone voice too. So every Wednesday at, uh, 10 30 in the morning, we, we really do have a good time together. It's really fun. It's really, really enjoyable. It's a happy part of life.
0: Well, you have a partner in your NFBC main event team. You mentioned he's a agent for opera singers, which seems like a re- really interesting job. Yes,
2: he is. He's he he's an interesting, kind man. He's a deeply intelligent. He's become a really close friend. Uh We share many teams together. I mean, we don't just share the main event team. It all started because in my di- my original dynasty league with Andrea's team, uh, I was sort of just getting tired, and I was just like, "Gosh, I'm playing this." I I was trying to find somebody to take over the team, but somebody good, right? Because the team was. I think it just come off a championship and I was just sort of like, I don't want to just hand this over to anybody. And I had known Rob just briefly on Facebook and I, we were Facebook friends and I just liked the way he talked about fantasy baseball. And I liked the way he talked about life a lot. I mean, he just seemed like a really thoughtful, kind man. That's all I'll say. I mean, he's really just thoughtful and kind. And uh, you know, as an opera manager, one thing he's done is he took over for the state of Wisconsin. He is the head of, I don't know exact title, but he works on COVID for the state of Wisconsin because it was like, I'm not doing anything because opera's all closed because of COVID. So I'm going to go help. And so he sort of started out just helping. And then he got a you know a promotion and then another promotion. And now he's like a state official who helps run the response to, to COVID. So he's a, he's a very kind, thoughtful, intelligent man. So I asked him, I said, will you take over the team? And he goes, no, but I'll partner with you. And I went, huh? He said, you want to, I thought about it for like a day. And then I said, yeah, all right, I'll I'll do it. And so we partnered and we ended up winning the league and he made some great, you know, pickups and thoughts about stuff. And I was like, Hey, you want to join me in this league? And so we did GDD, which is a, a New York, uh, kind of industry league that I'd been playing in for a while. And then he helped me with TGFBI. And then this year before the main event, he said, "I, I, we're doing the main event. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do the main event. He was like, come on, you're a very fine player and you know, you've never played in the main event and you just did, you know, d- you should play. And I said, yeah, but I don't want to put in that much money and I think it's going to change the game for me. And he said, I'll put up the money. You put in as much as you want and you can take that amount of percentage for it. And I said, all right, well, I guess if you think about it, if I'll just think about it like a $400 league, give me, give me a chance to play in the main event. And so we did. And it's gone really well. And we have a tremendous amount of fun together. And he's just, you know, I I asked him, I said, on the rundown, you talk about partnerships, like it's important to find a good partner and for people to understand what their roles are in that partnership. And he and I have a really, really good balance that is great.
0: In the under the radar pod, you talked about the decision that you and Robert made to shift your NFBC focus from winning your league in favor of yeah. really going all in chasing the overall title. I think you were fifth at the time. Uh, yeah. How did you arrive at that decision to really go all in?
2: <laughs> well, uh, funnily enough, uh, when we got our draw, we noticed that Philip Duceau was in our league and <laughs> it was like, all right, well, let's go. Let's see. I mean, because Phil so, who's a Canadian like yourself and my friend, Tim McLeod, um, he uh, he he's in our league and he just had the best fantasy baseball season of anyone in the game. Like no one's ever had what he did last year. He won the main event. And he won the auction online challenge. So I saw that and people were like, oh, no, you so sucks. I was like, what are you talking about? Sucks. That's like the greatest thing ever. They're like, why? I said, because I get to play against the best. You want to, I want to play the, you know, if we're going to play in the main event and you get a chance to play, do so. And Tyler Young is in the league and, you know, it's like really tough league. So what I did was I reached out to do so because he and I followed each other on Twitter. We, I congratulated him. he had sent me a private message congratulating me at the end of last season. And, you know, so it was a very polite. Nice, nice to meet you. Wow. You're awesome. Boom, boom, boom. So I, I reached out to him right after the draft. And I said, Hey, you got time to talk on the phone? And he said, sure. Yeah. All right. <laughs> you want to? And I was like, yeah, I do. I want to get to know you a little bit because I've listened to you on podcasts and you're real smart and why not, you know, get to get to know each other a little bit. So we did, and we talked for about 30 minutes. we talked about how, how we think about the game. It was like, Hey, good luck. Good team. I like your team. Hey, I like your team. It's going to be scary. Boom, boom, boom. So then about three weeks ago, I called him again. I just wanted to talk to him. I just, I wanted to Th- hear what he thought of how we were doing and if, if he liked how we were doing the pickups because it's it's not the uh a it's not a format that i'd really played a little bit with tgfbi it's similar to tgfbi but it's it's sort of outside and we had a pretty good lead at the time but he was close to us um and i i called him up and and he said so i have your answer i was like you do I I didn't know. I don't have a question. He goes, oh, I figured you were calling me to ask you how you could win the whole thing because we were in like 15th place at the time. I said, no, I was just calling to say hi. And he's like, oh, well, I kind of figured out how you can win the whole thing if you'd like to know. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what, yeah, I was doing that. That's what, yeah, sure. Sure, Phil. And so he said, look, you, you guys have a great base in hitting at the time. We had the number one hitting team out of the 705. And it was really just about the pitching, but we had three good closers in uh, Taylor Rogers, and Gregory Soto, and those two worked out, and we got them in a good place in the draft. And then we picked up Tanner Scott, which was really valuable. So we had a pretty big lead in saves, and we still have a pretty big lead in saves. And we were really mid pack, low mid pack in strikeouts and wins, but we have a lot of, but we had a lot of good starters because we had stashed Strasburg. This was before Strasburg got hurt again. And before sale got hurt again, which has changed our equation a little bit, but, but still, you know, still, still ballpark of being able to pull it off. And he said, all you need to do, you have such a big lead in saves is all you need to do is, is get case. You just need to throw eight starters or nine starters and you have them and you will have them. And I was like, yeah, we could do that. And he was like, you know, it, it's up to you. And I said for, from, and I talked to our call, Rob and I said, Hey Rob, this is what Phil said. And he goes, he's right. And, you know, I, I understand, but, but as soon as we said that we had 12 starts last week, we thought that we had a chance to be in first place going into the break with those 12 starts and it just went bad. So, and we dropped from fifth place to, I think we're in 13th place right now. Yeah. 13th place. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking back my, <laughs> this idea that, oh, well, we're forgetting about our league. Shut up, Con. Like, don't be an idiot. Like it, nothing's over. It's only the half well, a little bit past the halfway point but that's the idea behind it and there are a lot of points to be picked up in pitching with strikeouts and with wins a ton there's a lot of points there and so uh that is still somewhat the plan and we made some good pitching pickups we think i mean we started with it, it, we started with uh with the 15th pick and we started with Devers and Betts at 15 16 and then we went to Cedric Mullins and Aaron Judge at forty five, forty six. So we understood that pitching that our hitting, if it stayed healthy, was going to be good. But the question was how we're going to handle the pitching. And then we took uh, Logan Webb and Yu Darvish. But it didn't really, you know, Webb hasn't really given us the strikeouts. And then later we took Jordan Montgomery, Joe Ryan, uh, and then we added Corey Kluber. We took Marco Gonzalez, who's who's since gone. But right now our starters, we've picked up Hunter Green. Spencer Strider and Reed Detmers. So right now we have, n- and, and we picked up Freddie Peralta a few weeks ago for very little money, like $16. And he'll be coming back at the beginning of August. So right now, if everyone stays healthy, uh, and that's a big, no one will stay healthy, but we could throw nine starters with Darvish, Green, Detmers, Webb, Montgomery, Ryan, Strider, Kluber, and Peralta and actually sit our closers because we have only a three-point lead in saves over so but then a 10-point drop till the next guy in our league for saves. So there's there's room. We've got room to play there and so many points to gain in strikeouts in our league and in the overall. So that's the the, the thought process behind it. But, you know, as soon as you start talking good stuff about yourself, the bad stuff will, you know, watch what you say, Khan. Is, is what kind of what I took away from that. So yesterday on the show, I was like, eh, we're, we're not looking at the overall right now. We're, we're just going to try to play good baseball.
0: My first thought when I heard you talk about this was about how often we hear that the key to winning an overall race, especially one with so many teams, you said 705 in the main event this year, is that you have to have balance in the categories. And I wondered how that advice squares with your move to start basically eight starting pitchers. And I think I heard you say maybe even nine if the circumstances uh, were right because you're chasing strikeouts. And I imagine to a lesser extent uh, wins as well, but it seems like there's ground to be lost at the same time as you're making up ground there. That's the balance that you have to strike.
2: I think so. But, but one thing that I, I never want to start a pitcher that I don't feel confident when they're going up there like i don't want to start a guy in at houston like if uh who uh, you know like hunter green is to me very where he's starting dependent because psychologically i look at him and the difference between him feeling good about himself and him not feeling good about himself is the difference between 7 and a third perfect innings or no hit innings it wasn't perfect or you know four innings five runs eight strikeouts which will still give you those strikeouts, but but pretty much everybody else here on this team, Detmers is still a question. Like that's also another, you know, we'll see, we'll see on the on the. But we can throw relievers that week. You know, we can we can throw relievers. But pretty much everyone else, I'm going to throw Jordan Montgomery uh, against everybody. We're we're throwing him at Houston tonight. Uh, we're throwing we're going to throw Joe Ryan pretty much every time. Logan Webb will get a start, except for maybe in Colorado. Darvish the same. Strider. I'll start Strider anywhere because his stuff is so powerful that I just, I mean, he, he doesn't typically get blown up. I mean, if you look at the numbers and he's a guy that I picked up an NL labor and a tout wars, he's been in my lineup the whole time. But in the main event, I picked him up that same week for like three bucks. It was like april 10th and i was like hey, i think this guy might be something and then rob was like this guy's not pitching and i was like Yeah, all right all right we could drop him and then we dropped him and then just when it looked like he might get do it again i said we got to get strider back and, and he was like okay if you really want to i was like, again yeah, i want to pay for him too and because our hitting is so strong we can afford to pay for pitching keep paying for pitching because the hitting largely until recent injuries has been really phenomenal um so yeah, but I, I I don't worry about ratios with guys that I like, you know. I, I just don't worry about it. I'm like I, I trust you. Go get them, Go give me six. Give us seven.
0: I was wondering about the decimals as well, but as you said, if you trust the pitchers and you can stream them in effectively, I think that mitigates that risk a little bit. Talking about the money, I I've talked about this with serious main event players before. There's about eight thousand bucks to be had winning an individual league. And I think it's what 175 if you win the overall, but the odds against you winning the overall are so much steeper than winning your league from a financial perspective alone. It's always seemed to me like it makes more sense to, to try to win your league if you're just in it to make money it's more sensible to try to win your league rather than the overall. But I think for a lot of guys who play in, in the main event, especially industry guys, there's a lot of cachet to winning the main event that has, yeah. has value beyond just putting a, a few extra shekels in your checking account.
2: It's, it's, a, it's a good amount of shekels to be shared between two guys, what, where, in whatever place you get any extra money that you win is, is fantastic. But the, but, but really we've got in, in this, in this league, right now i'm just going to look real quick at the at the strikeouts we're in 8th place in strikeouts and we have 5 easy points to pick up in strikeouts so what's going to help us in the overall is actually really going to help us in our league as well so it's not it's not to the exclusion that's why my comment was sort of stupid and that i i kind of regret saying it it was it was a little bit too much Feeling too good about yourself was, you know, fifth place and twelve starts coming up next week. Here comes Chris Sale, baby. We've been waiting on you, Saley. Now there goes your finger, Saley. Bye, Saley. See you later. You are now officially dropped. That was a loss for the season, but it, it, it's not one to the other, right? It's not. It's not as if us doing this is going to hurt us in our league. It's going to help us in our league too. It's just how how I was thinking about it. And it, frankly, it, I just want guys to pitch well, you know, because we need wins. We're mid-pack in wins and we're mid-pack in strikeouts. We're top 80%, I think, in saves overall. We're number one in the league in saves. Mid-pack in ERA and top of the league in WHIP. So we're just giving up a lot of home runs. Second in the league in WHIP, and seventh in the league in ERA. So, you know, I just, I, I actually think it's, it, it will help both along the way. What you're saying about the, the odds. Yeah, you're right. It's 7,000 to win the league. Rob told me, he said, by the way, Ian, it's not 8,000, it's 7,000. So that's just a, a little side note.
0: Oh, I looked it up and it said 8,000 in the official thing uh, that Greg sent out before the season started, I think it said. Well, then
2: I get to tell Rob for a change that he's not right.
0: Well, double check because it was the post that he put on the NFPC forum was old, but it was, uh, that's what it said. Anyway, uh, getting back to this question, what I was wondering about more was we know that punting a category can be really useful in when you're playing just a single league and that's all you care about, especially when you presume that everybody else is going to try for a little more balance in an NFBC setup where there's, everybody's chasing the overall as well as the, uh, trying to win their leagues. It seems like they're forced to be playing a more balanced lineup and punting yes. might even be a greater strategy, a more effective strategy, if all you wanted to do was try to win your league, because you could really load up on nine of the 10 categories and just say, I'm not going to worry about speed because everybody else has to pay for speed with their high draft picks because they don't want to be left out in the overall. It might be a real, if you, again, if it was just about making money, I think, I wonder if punting a category with the sole intent of doing better in your individual league, especially if maybe you had multiple individual leagues and you could punt various categories that you might financially be better off doing it that way. What do you think?
2: Uh, I think maybe for me, I don't like punting categories. I just don't like it. It, it, feel, I feel like it puts so much pressure on all the other categories. You gotta be at the top and it's certainly an overall component. You cannot punt. a a category right as you say right um but if you're just going for your league i I can see the point of it i just try to relax as much as i can (laughs) in playing fantasy baseball and it just feels like you gotta fight hard to get those other 135 points so it would make me somewhat nervous have you ever tried that have you ever tried to punt a category in NFBC or in, to see if it works?
0: Oh, I don't play the NFBC except for TGFBI uses NFBC rules, but uh, something you said earlier resonated with me, wh- which was I don't want to be in a situation where money is a really important part of it. Yeah. I, I don't want to invest 1750 US dollars, which is like 10 million Canadian dollars, in what is a really long shot thing. You know, I, I mean, it's it's not a, it's counting the rake and everything else, the payoffs, uh, I used to be in the casino business and I, and the, I understand the payoffs and <laughs> this is not a good bet under any circumstances and I'm certainly not comfortable and it changes the way you think about the game too, if you're, if yeah. it's part of your livelihood, you know, if you're trying to make money at it, I don't, I don't like to have that added pressure. So I just don't play those games.
2: That's, that's how I have really always been. And it was only in finding a partner who said, Hey, I'm going to cover it. Do you want in? I just want you to help me. I'm doing it. So just no, I
0: do me. that too, yeah.
2: And then I said, "All right, well, I guess under those circumstances and if it's just like a $400 league, which is expensive as it is, a $400 in a league. Uh but the good news is if we do do well, we can use that money moving forward. And it has been uh it, look, we've been very lucky so far. So we'll see if that we'll see if that indeed holds." but I definitely see your, uh, your point of view about it. That's always how I felt. I was like, this is not how I make my living. It's a, uh, side, uh, hobby. I make a little bit of money from the athletic, but, um, it's a side hobby and and something I enjoy. And if all of a sudden I'm thinking about whether we're going to be able to spend an extra couple of days on vacation or not, because I played fantasy baseball that, that might change the equation for me. So uh, Rob, but Rob, let me buy in for the full half when things were going so well. He was like, you want in for the full half? I was like, yeah, actually, I think I do. Oh, nice. Well, you've earned it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're, we're full 50, 50 partners. It's great. It's great. It's listen, having partners, having partners is challenging, can be challenging. I have a lot of partners in most of my leagues, except for NL tout and AL labor. I do those completely by myself. But other than that, all my dynasty leagues, all my keeper leagues, I have partners and it adds so much joy to the equation. You just really got to understand what your boundaries are with each other. Uh, and if you do, it can be wonderful because all of a sudden people, you know, Steve Gardner is going to give me a thought about a player that I then can use in all my other leagues. Right. It's like right. You're, you've got a lot of brains working together. It's teamwork. It's fun. It's fun. Just like Rob and I were talking and I said, you know, he does, he, you know, how do you do all the fab for all these many leagues? Well, for the leagues I do with Rob, Rob puts up all the players that he sees, And sort of sets things up. And I said to him the other night on the phone, I was like, is it all right if I kind of, I feel like we're a little bit like I'm the chef and you're like the the best sous chef in the business. And he's like, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. And so that's how we work. You know? So he's like, look, we could do this. We could do this. This is an option. This is an option. And then I just kind of use my brain to go, well, this amount of money is going to get him. This, this will get, you know, and then I do my fab calculations and figure out how to, you know, what, what I think it's going to be. And then we talk about it. And he says, well, I think you're spending too much there. I said, all right, well, maybe I'll bring it down a little bit. And then, and then we kind of come to a place where we're both very happy. It's really fun. You've got to be somebody who you can forgive mistakes because, gosh knows, I make them. I, last year, I, I was sure that Joe Ross was going to be the answer. I loved his energy on the mound. And, bo- 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 bo. and Rob's like, I don't know. I don't know. And then we gave up 10 runs and two and a third. And I had to call him up and just be like, I'm so sorry. It's like, nope, that's the game. It's just what happens. So if you can find that balance with a partner, I really recommend it.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Ian Kahn from The Athletic and the uh, Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. And Ian, you've had a lot of success doing your in-season roster management. I think it's a core strength of your ability to do well in leagues. And I'm curious in particular about fab bids, which you just mentioned Generally speaking, I read a lot about how people calculate their fab bids and how you ought to go about it, but I usually find their explanations come up a little short for me. What's your approach?
2: It's, it's a lot of different things. Like I'll, I'll see a guy, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the lineups and trying to see who's getting the playing time. That's first, right? Figure out who you want and decide if you like that kind of a player. If you like, for me, do I like the way he thinks about the game? Do I like the way he thinks about himself? Once I've decided, okay, I want this guy, then that, so, so that's the first thing. I split it up into players that I like, players I don't like. player, or And sometimes they're players you need. You just got to fill a spot. Whether you like them or not, you need somebody to be, depending on your league, if it's a 12-team or 10-team, there's always somebody there that you can get. And then it really becomes a question of taste. But a 15-team league, it's like, look, I need a corner infielder right now, and Carlos Santana is available, and he's a little hot, and all right, it's going to be Carlos Santana, right? So then, or... You know, Christopher Morrell, that that that's was that been a big pickup over the course of this year. But let's say with Spencer Strider, I uh, I wanted him. I wanted him bad. And, you know, I was like, well, how much is he going to be? I think he's going to be like 52. So first I try to figure out what I think the number is. And then I say, all right, well, if I think it's 52, and then someone else might be thinking 52, and they want him too, they may go to 65. Okay, they're going to 65. And I really want this guy. All right. So if I really want him, I got to go to 75. Okay. I really want him. I'm going to go to 75 because then the, the price is 52. But if I really want if somebody else, really wants him, they're going to go to 65. So I'm going to go to 75. But wait, I really want him. I'm going to 87. You don't need to go to 87. I'm going to 87 because I want him. So then I go, I take what the number is that I think it is. I take the, I imagine what the other person is thinking. Then I try to go on top of that number. And then on top of that number again, uh, that's for a guy I really, really want. Then there are guys like Asturie Ruiz we picked up this week. I didn't really want Asturie Ruiz. And I thought, what's the number on Asturie Ruiz? I said, well, Well, first, first is when the fab comes back, what number am I not going to want (laughs) to see where it's like, I can't believe you went for that low we were going to maybe talk about Vickery at some point. So I said the lowest he could possibly go is like $25. So I bid 26 this week and we got him. And the next highest bid was 23. So it, that, that's kind of how I think about it. I, I I try to imagine what everyone else is thinking along the way. And then I adjust for it. And I say, well, no, I, I want him. I want him. Or sometimes I say, you know what? I don't really want him. Or like Reed Detmer's two weeks ago, Rob was sure. He's like, We're, we got to get Reed Detmers. We got to get Reed Detmers. All right. Well, what do you think it's going to cost? And he, and he had put in 41 and I said, yeah, that's probably what it's going to cost. And I didn't really want Reed Detmers. I wasn't sure. I wasn't positive, but I said, 41 will do it. So I think it'll go like, he's probably going to go 33, 34. So 41 gives us a little bit of a buffer. Let's go 41. So we got him for forty-one, and he went. The second bid was thirty-seven. Now, there's a lot of times where, um, you know, we when we bid Hunter Green, I wanted him. I was like, this could we needed the strikeouts, like we've needed strikeouts from the night of the draft, and I said we're going to go one hundred and five. He's like, we don't need to spend that much. No one's going to bid that high. I said, I, I understand that, but I believe in him, and we're I, I want us to get Hunter Green because I think he can help us win the whole thing. And he said, okay, 105, no one's gonna come close. The next bid was 55, Rob was right. And you know what? I don't care because we got Hunter Green and he's exactly what we need. So now, I mean, we're we're a little, we are about $230 I think we have left, which is fine for, for where we are. And we're not gonna be streaming pictures cause I don't believe in it. I try, hopefully we're not streaming pictures. I just don't like doing that. So it's like, get the guys you want. Does that, does that all make sense, Patrick? This whole theory of figuring out where, what I think it is and then going and then making adjustments for it.
0: It seems a little magical to me, the, the approach and where I am still kind of wondering is you said when you were talking about Spencer Strider, okay, you set your price at 52, then you start calculating, well, what are other guys going to think and so on and so forth. And that to me seems a little magical anyway, because, unless you have a really good understanding of the players in your league and you don't usually get that in a, in a single year league where you're never playing against the same guys two years in a row. So there's all of that. But what I'm really interested in is how did you get to 52 in the first place?
2: Well, uh, he had not yet gotten the starting job, but I think that week he had pitched four innings. So they were stretching him out. And I think he had six strikeouts and didn't give up any, I think maybe gave up one run. I don't know. We could, I could look back and see specifically what it was. So that's not a $25 player. That's somebody who's already shown something. Um, there was some talk that maybe he'd go in the rotation, but he had no guarantee. Right. So I thought he's not going to be a $250 George Kirby like player who I try to avoid at all costs. Like I don't, I don't spend the the big bucks on the rookie coming up. I, I just don't do it. And I just, I don't know. I don't know. It's a little magical. I mean, kind of how I play the game is a little magical, Patrick. <laughs> I kind of, I, I just sort of use my intuition, so to speak, yeah. and say, what, what is that number? Like, what what is everyone going to want to bid? And I go, oh, they're going to have are bid thinking about 52, you know? And then, <laughs> but in some leagues, we Strider went for 110. So, you know, we did get lucky, I felt, even though uh, we overspent a little bit in our league. In another league, he went for 110. So, you know, it, it, it's luck too. There's a, a lot of luck involved. Uh, there was somebody this week who I really wanted and we, Oh, Oh, Max Mayer, Max Mayer. I, I, I watched him pitch. <laughs> Did you happen to watch any of his, uh, any of his outing the other day? No, I didn't. It was pretty special and, and not just the stuff, but it was, he just, and, and then what I also do, especially with rookies is I try to watch the managers talk about them because just in the little wink of an eye, they'll tell you what they think of them right? Like, remember Joe Madden was talking about Joe Adele and sort of saying, well, he's got a lot to learn. Like, ah, hey, Joe Adele ain't going to, not what you want to hear. And then I watched Mattingly, I, first I watched Meyer pitch. That's the first thing I do is I look at the stuff and I look at the psychology and I get an answer for that and I went, whoa, holy smoke. There's a reason this guy was the third pick in the draft. And I just watch him between pitches and his, his sort of like forward momentum of, I'm going to get you out. Then I watched him be interviewed, talk about himself and how he feels about his start. And then I watched Mattingly talk about him. And Mattingly said this. Mattingly said, the kid just never stops going forward. He just pounds the zone. It's very impressive. And I'm like, oh, all right. So Meyer, Meyer's sticking around. Like, and, and this is my guess. It's my guess. But Meyer's sticking around. But someone else saw those same interviews because they bid a lot more than we did. And they got the player. But we did get him in GDD. And we raised our bid in GDD because of the bids that were happening in NFBC, which is something I would also recommend. Like go go look at what NFBC is bidding at ten o'clock at night before you do your two, you know, your if you're on CBS that runs at two in the morning. I like to see what what are, what are people doing with these with these bids.
0: That's a really good idea if you're if your leagues have staggered deadlines that use the information you get from league number one to inform yourself in what you want to do in league number two, how should managers feel when they look at their winning bid and it's like way higher than the runner up you bid 91 or there was no runner up at all. Well, if you
2: bid 91 and there's no runner up at all, that's not great. That's, that's, that's not a good, that's not good. I was talking to Rob DiPietro, uh, cause I like to talk to smart guys about the game. And he was uh, sharing with me about Freddie Peralta that he was frustrated with himself because he bid 16 and nobody else bid to me, 16 or one, $2 out of a hundred. So 16 out of a thousand, 16 is a perfect bid for a player that you want, that you want to make sure you get 16 is a really good bid because I, again, here, I'm gonna do the math. Someone says, well, Peralta is going to be back in four weeks. Um, so I'm going to have to stash him and an NFPC, there's no IL. So, all right. So if, if I have to stash him, how much is he worth? He's like, he's like a $6 bid, but I want him. So I'm going to, I'm going to go to nine or maybe I'll go to 11. And then you have to think, well, what if they really want him? Oh, well, I really want him. And then I'll go to 14 or 15. You bid 16 on a player like that, you're going to get him. And so if I see 16 and then one, I think that's what our backup bid was on Peralta when we got him, I think it was 16, maybe it was 16 to five or something. Like somebody else put in a bid for him. I feel great about it. Are you kidding? It's just fabulous. So 91, 911, one. No, no good. No good. There's, there's, there's a spot there. You don't want to do 33, one either, you know, you, but 16, one, 16, nothing. I'm even okay with because you have a feeling you have, this is a game of intuition. This is a game of what you think might happen. You got to listen to yourself. You got to listen to yourself in life. You got to listen to yourself in fantasy baseball.
0: I think that's overlooked a lot of times. People want to turn it into something that could be run by formula. And I just don't think it works that way because of the personal part of it. Uh, When I started in tout, we used victory bidding. The winner pays $1 more than the first runner up. And it makes more sense to me than the blind bidding that we use now because it seems to me it's more like a regular auction. If you actually got all the guys in the league together in a room and had an auction, and somebody bid $3, you wouldn't bid 60, you wouldn't bid 18, you'd bid four. So what's your take on victory bidding? Have if you've ever tried it? I don't know.
2: I've never tried it. I've always wanted to try it. There's something about it that sounds awesome. And yet, um, there's also something about if you're selling a house, right? So we sold our house two years ago and bought a new house and when we sold our house, we had a number of different people we we kind of i use fantasy base i use fantasy baseball everywhere with at all times in all of my negotiations for buying houses it's the same stuff it's like making a fantasy baseball trade everything in life is can be like making a fantasy baseball trade and when i'm there when i was there at the last moment we knew we had three bidders because we underpriced the house by just enough that we got so many people to come look at it it was right before covid people were looking for houses and I was like, you know, they're like, we think we can, you can get this. I was like, well, don't put it for that. Put it for about this much less because then more people will come see it and then we'll get a bidding war. And they're like, well, it's a risk. It's like, yeah, but I think, I think you say it's worth this. I agree with you. Just bring it down a little bit. And then we did, we got a bidding war. We ended up with 10% more than what they originally said we could get. Um, and because you had best and final offer now, and they didn't know what the other people were bidding but they were trying to outbid what they were. So I'm, I'm of two minds about it. I I, I can tell that you kind of like the Vickery and you wish we went back to it. I'd be open to it, but I see the upside on the other. How's that sound? Is that fair? Yeah, that sounds
0: fine. Actually, Vickery bidding might make a lot of sense in a, in a house auction too. If you wanted to get everybody going, if you say, look, however much you bid, we're going to reduce the price to a dollar more than the second place bidder. I bet you'd end up with higher bidding as a result because that's the interesting part about victory to me when I, when I was playing it is there's this whole other angle of how aggressive are people likely to bid just because they know they're going to only pay a dollar more. So you could, if you want really want a guy and you think he's worth 20, you bid 350 because it'll only be 21 if somebody does bid 20. The problem is if two guys are thinking like that, then one of them is going to end up bidding 350 and the next thing is going to bid 360 and all of a sudden you're you're paying 351 for a $20 player. And that part of the psychology also interested me. It's just another way to change the game and make it interesting. Yeah.
2: Can I talk about a a, sure. a a spot that I really wish we had victory Because it's a it, this was a magical thinking failure on my part in a big way. It was like week two of NL Tout Wars. And I'm watching Pooh holes. He just gets signed by St. Louis. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I made the whole story. He goes back to St. Louis. He becomes the everyday DH. He returns with 29 home runs and 92 RBIs and blah, 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 blah. And everyone else is thinking this exact thing. They're going to bid 50. I got to go to 84. I'm going to 84, everybody. I don't care. I'm 84. I want pools. I want this story. I'm going to follow them all year. It's going to be the great return of the great Albert Pools. $84 up bid, zero. No one bid on him, zero. Schmuck, yeah. that's me. Schmuck,
0: Schmuck could have so, been one in a victory.
2: <laughs> it would have been one. I would. Have, I would have taken the victory on that one because that was just a straight con loss. Yes, and he was dropped. I think. I think I dropped him last week. Uh, the, a week later, yeah. when I was like, "Oh, you're gonna play two games a week, and maybe only one game a week, and you're they're just gonna sort of bring out yeah, this isn't gonna work." So you know, you know, capita Marcano fifty four dollars blew it. Bly Madras, $54, blew it. But, you know, Christopher Morell $22, big win. You know, Spencer Strider, I think I got for 14. So I'd say, you know, you win some, you lose some, for sure. And I've, I lose my shirt too, for sure.
0: And that's part of it, I think, uh, as well, that you have to think about when you're making these decisions about how much to bid is. You have to understand you're going to lose sometimes and run your auction, your blind auction, expecting that you just have to bid what you think the bid is really worth. Maybe add a few bucks. If you think, as you said, that somebody else is going to be in at around where you are, maybe bump it twice. If you think that's necessary because there's more than one guy bidding, but I don't think that it's sensible to go into the hundreds for $15 players just to make sure you get them. No,
2: definitely not. And I, I don't like bidding 300. I mean, I don't like bidding. I like fab. I want to have more fab than not. At the end of the year, I don't want to be hamstrung. Now, the good thing about tout wars is you can trade for fab, but in labor, you can't trade for fab. So I'm still sitting with $63 of fab with Tristan Cockroft at 63 and Brett Sarah with 60, I think, or maybe Tristan's got 60 and Brett's got 63. Everyone else has like 19 or less. And, and the reason is because of the beginning of the season. I think this is a weird season because of this. We did a, a bidding at the top of the year for all the players that were free agents. So a lot of guys spent $75, $68 and people are like, you didn't bid anything. I was like, I don't, I just don't want to spend that. i, I rather have the flexibility to find a Skybolt for $3 or an Emmanuel Rivera or you know, a Watkins from Baltimore. You know, I, I need that. I, I prefer that flexibility. But Fab is fabulous and interesting. I could talk about it all day.
0: Well, it has been very interesting so far. Let's take a break and we'll finish our discussion after we do the National American League news. Sounds great. Ian Kahn appears every week on the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast, and he'll be back a little later on in this podcast. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news, and Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to remind you about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And in Playing Time Tomorrow, as you heard, all our Playing Time Tomorrow analysts have been looking at the rosters across baseball to find breakout possibilities. Playing Time Tomorrow is just one of the great resources available all the time when you're a member of the team at BaseballHQ.com.
2: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report and leading off, it's our National League news and our old friend, Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you, Patrick.
0: Let's start in New York. Good news for the Mets. They said star pitcher Jacob DeGrom is close to returning from the shoulder injury that has cost him the whole season so far. What do you hear?
3: Well, DeGrom hasn't pitched in the majors since July 7th, 2021 missed the second half of last season with right forearm tightness at a sprained elbow and then got back from that only to have shoulder issues in spring training and was shut down again. But he threw 60 pitches in five innings of a simulated game uh, on Thursday, struck out 10 in the, in those five innings. Uh, initially he was supposed to throw live batting practice, but the outing was pushed back two days after he experienced some shoulder muscle soreness in his right shoulder, but that went away and he was ready to go again. So He's made three uh, minor league rehab starts, the most recent on July 14th for A Syracuse. We had, had always been expected to return shortly after the all-star break. So uh, we're getting close. It's been decided, has not been decided if he'll make any more minor league starts, but up to 60 pitches, certainly puts him close to returning.
0: Well, that'd be good news for fantasy baseball, for real baseball, for the Mets, for DeGrom's fantasy managers. He's just one of those stars that, it's good for baseball when he's out back out there so I'm really looking forward to seeing DeGrom sooner rather than later and he does seem to be right on the timetable that they set out way back when and we've talked about this a couple of times Nick uh, it looks like pretty good news at least it could have been worse way worse
3: it could have been it could have been much worse the shoulder soreness after the after one of the uh batting practice issue was a little scary but apparently that went away almost overnight and so uh that, that that's good news and Let's hope he can get back out on the field and stay there the rest of the season.
0: Having said that, uh, DeGrom has had a lot of trouble staying on the field with one injury and, and another injury and they're all over the place too, which is a bit concerning in a way it's good news that it's not always his elbow or always his shoulder, but it's always something, you know, and I wonder if you were in a, a league where you had access to Jacob de perhaps by a, a trade in a keeper league where you could trade away some good young talent to get Jacob de and make a run for it. How eager would you be to acquire Jacob Degrom, knowing what you know about his health issues?
3: Well, you know, I think you'd have to consider uh, that, that's certainly a good point. I think you'd have to consider you might only have him for two starts or three starts or four starts, so I wouldn't give away the uh give away the your entire club for him. But on the other hand, if you need pitching help, there's not much better place to get it.
0: That's what I was thinking too. If you were interested in making the making the trade for Jacob DeGrom, the fact of his past injury history might give you a little leverage to lower down the expectations of your trading partner. If he's asking for the farm, maybe you could just give him the you know, the barn and the hay shed and, and call it a deal. Yeah, there you go. The Mets also made a little news announcing that DH first baseman Dominic Smith is going to the IL. Apparently, he rolled his ankle.
3: Smith's injury occurred on Sunday, so he can return as early as July 27th, but he was already on thin ice before that. A 194 batting average, a 211 expected batting average, and more concerning, perhaps, no homers over 134 at-bats. He had been seeing most of the DH activity against righties, but it's unclear if the Mets will continue to use him in that capacity, even when he's healthy. For now, we've reduced the projected at-bats significantly. J.D. Davis and Sterling Marte get up chicks in playing time at DH.
0: That sounds about right. J.D. Davis is an interesting guy. Uh, somebody to take a look at it, if his playing time is going to increase for sure. In San Francisco, a kind of a mixed bag of news. Some good news, some not so good. Uh, on the good side, the Giants activated third baseman Evan Longoria from the 10-day IL. I believe I saw a picture of him. He celebrated by getting a blonde mohawk, which is going to be symbolic in some way. And they also activated right-handed starter Jake Junis from the 15-day IL. A pretty good surprise this year Jake Junis has been. On the bad side, they put shortstop Brandon Crawford back on the 10-day IL and right-handed reliever Mauricio Yovera on the 15-day IL. Jake Crumpler covering all of this for playing time today. So who gets what chair now that the music has stopped?
3: Crawford landed on the 10-day IL with right knee inflammation. That's the same injury he had just returned from uh, two weeks, less than two weeks ago. Uh, didn't hit well in his return, Will likely miss more than the minimum 10 days this time even after receiving treatment for the, from the free time off during the All-Star break. Longoria spent less time on the IL than we originally thought with a left oblique strain. Oblique injuries can take a month to heal, but Longoria is back within the minimum 10 days and will replace Crawford on the roster. Longoria gains 30 points in playing time, percentage to put him back where he was prior to the injury, while Crawford loses 10% until his timeline is more clear, and the rest is spread around to accommodate the changes.
0: Well, by my reckoning, Nick, that seems to leave the Giants with uh, one too many third basemen and one too few shortstops. What's going to go on there?
3: Oh, you're, you're right about that. In the first game after those two roster moves, Longoria started at third. Third baseman David Villar moved over to second, and Thio Estrada played short. And we believe this will be the usual configuration until Crawford is back. That makes Wilmer Flores' role a bit more fluid. He'll move, move around, fill in all over the field. Uh, now, that first game back, the position was against the lefty, so Villar could be on the wrong side of a platoon. We'll have to wait and see for sure.
0: And meanwhile, what's the upshot on the Giants' pitching side?
3: Jovera landed on a 15-day IL with a grade-two right flexor strain, likely out until the beginning of August, and Junis will replace him on the roster, re-entering the rotation after missing the past month, plus with a strained left hamstring. All of this seems to solidify Sam Long's role as a swing man after he had filled in as a bulk reliever in a number of Bull Kim games while Junis was out. Junis won't start until after the All-Star break, giving him additional time to rest and ramp up, but before the break, posted a 2.63 ERA across 48 innings in what could really be a breakout season for him. Lovera will surrender a point of playing time to Junis to reflect Junis' role as a sturdy rotation member.
0: This Junis is another example of what San Francisco does with these starting pitchers that nobody else seems to want. I remember uh, Jake Junis from Kansas City, and he was really nothing special. In fact, he was worse than nothing special. He was actually a guy, most of the time, you really didn't want on your roster. But he goes over to San Francisco, they throw those 27 pitching coaches at him, and here he is, 268 ERA. That's pretty good, uh, pretty good pitching.
3: It is indeed. Uh, you know, you, you, it, you're, it's clear they're doing something right. In terms of dealing with their with their pitchers. And if I were a if I were a young pitcher I could land in certainly a worse spot than San Francisco at this point.
0: Or if you were an old pitcher, they've done the same thing with a lot of sort of reclamation projects and turned some fairly uh, unappealing older pitchers into fairly appealing older pitchers and and they've done that successfully it's getting to the point nick where i think when we're looking at our free agent pools and and even our preseason draft pools and trying to figure out which pitchers we want to slot where i think we need to bump up pretty much every pitcher that san francisco imports a couple of notches just on the belief that they really know what they're doing when it comes to these reclamation projects
3: yeah i think you're absolutely right about that i mean it's uh uh, it certainly makes a difference. It's it's a kind of situation where a, a small tweak um, can make a can make a big difference in terms of what the pitcher is doing. So uh, they've certainly they're doing they're doing things right in the pitching coaching area right now.
0: In Philadelphia, the Phils activated starting pitcher Ranger Suarez, who had been on the I.L. with a back problem. They also activated infielder Johan Camargo, who had a knee issue. Both of them come off the I.L. What are the playing time ramifications in this move?
3: To make room for Suarez and Camargo, Philadelphia farmed out two former number one overall picks, Mickey Maniak and Mark Apple. We've talked about them before. Suarez was immediately reinserted into the Phillies rotation, responded with five shutout innings during which he struck out four and only allowed four hits. We expect that he will continue in the rotation and have given him a small innings innings bump.
0: This Ranger Suarez has had a kind of peculiar year this year. He was so good last year and really not that good this year, and a lot of fantasy managers have given up on Ranger Suarez, but as you said, his first start back looked pretty good. You can't make a, a huge decision based on one start, but it seems to be a step in the right direction. Meanwhile, what about Johan Camargo?
3: We expect him to return to a utility role with the fills, giving about 25% of the at-bats around second, third, short, and the outfield. Already qualifies at all four infield positions, but not yet in the outfield. Uh, so he'll, he'll get some playing time.
0: Yeah, I just don't know how much he's going to do with it, but especially in deeper leagues, you got to like those guys that have all that position eligibility because in – In leagues that have those very, very slim free agent pickings, a guy like that can really roll around and help you out. Uh, Finally, Nick, as we head into the second half, actually the last 42%, the Playing Time Tomorrow analysts at Baseball HQ have really been busy scouring the rosters of National League teams looking for potential second-half breakouts. Uh, let's start with Alain DeLeonardis. He covers the National League East, and he says to keep an eye on a guy we seem to talk about every week or every other week here on the National League News at Baseball HQ Radio, Philadelphia outfielder Matt Veerling.
3: Yeah, Matt Vierling received devoted confidence as a primary center fielder in Philadelphia when the team optioned Maniac uh, back to AAA Lehigh Valley on, on July the 16th. Veerling has apparently done enough over the last month plus to convince the brass that the short side of the previous platoon with Mickey Maniac could be trusted to shoulder most of the center field load moving forward. Uh, Veerling is far from the most impactful fantasy player on the Phillies, uh, but he's the one who, with enough playing time, could see the biggest increase in value compared to what we've been expecting prior to the All-Star break. As it turns out, he's not without upside. The question is, does a second-half Veerling look more like a June Veerling, a 907 OPS and 88 BPV, or like a July Veerling? 539 OPS, minus 28 BPV. The 25-year-old was trying to build off a promising 2021 debut. Uh, Last year, 843 OPS, 113 hard contact index, and 71 at-bats when he scuffled very early in 2022, Uh, 472 OPS and 54 at-bats, 54 plate appearances. So he was optioned out on May the 11th, came back on June the 7th, and tore the cover off the ball over his first three weeks before cooling off the last three weeks. So what gives? Uh, why would the Phillies brass, do you think, feel comfortable handing the reins over to Veerling? And should you feel comfortable with him on your fantasy roster? If we start to look under the hood a bit, uh, some pronounced undulations in Veerling's hard hit rate, but roughly over his last 30 games, that trend has taken him above the league average of 35.7% hard hit rate. Overall, his 48.1% hard hit rate in 2022 would rank him 30th in Major League Baseball if he qualified for the batting title. Shohei Otani is currently 31st with a 48% hard hit rate. Simultaneously, Vierlin's swinging strike rate has dropped below 10%. That's a good place to be. His 83rd percentile maximum exit velocity, 112.1 mile per hour, confirms his pop. Uh, 12.8% launch angle is conducive to more barrels and the cherry on top of the skills building boasts a 98th percentile sprint speed which hasn't led to many steals yet only three stolen bases but that could be because of his lack of success three caught stealings as well.
0: Yeah, that's something that you have to keep in mind, Nick, isn't it? When a guy has the great wheels, but just doesn't have the knack for it, it's kind of the opposite of when a player doesn't seem to have great speed, but somehow manages to steal quite a few bases, like Paul Goldschmidt down in St. Louis.
3: Exactly. I mean, it it takes a stealing bases is not just a matter of speed, it's a matter of figuring out a lot of other things that let let you know when to go and when to head back to first and all of that. So uh, he's still developing that knack, but Basically, it turns out that Vierlin has a knack for hitting the ball hard, just enough in the air, makes good contact, and top-of-the-line foot speed. And those are all skills that as fantasy managers we look for. And plus, he's played five games at third base, which could make him eligible, close to eligible in some leagues. Uh, the team may opt to upgrade its center field via trade, and that's something to watch out for. But Verling's defensive versatility could help him survive an import. So, and at this point, he shouldn't cost much to put on your roster.
0: All of which makes him a, a pretty attractive candidate. I know in, in National League-only setups, he would uh, definitely be gone. But I think the question is, when you start looking at 15-team mixed, and especially 12-team mixed, where you have a lot of choices, and then the question is, is Virling good enough or promising enough to be one of those choices? And maybe, Nick, this is one of those situations where, if you're already being super competitive in your first, second, or third, a few points out of the lead, I don't think this is a chance you want to take. But on the other hand, if you're building in a keeper league or if you're sort of sixth in your league now and you could use a, a shot in the arm, this is the kind of player that really you might want to take a chance on.
3: Yeah, I think your, your analysis is absolutely right. It's uh, He's a guy who's likely to be sitting out there and will cost you probably nothing, but uh, as long as you... It may depend on what, you, what you're what you able to do with him. If you put him on your bench and see what he's doing, that's probably a worthwhile gamble to take. If you've got to put him right in your starting lineup, I'm not so sure.
0: It's definitely a risk. Uh, Alan also mentioned a hot prospect. Miami right-hander Max Meyer got called up to great fanfares of trumpets and huzzas from the crowd. Uh, how's he doing so far, and what does Alan like about him so much?
3: Well, he made his Major League debut on July the 16th against Philadelphia. Um uh, innings pitch, seven hits, five earned runs, one walk, five strikeouts. We saw glimpses in that of the talent that could make him a must-own in the coming months and the coming years. He threw a whopping uh, 18 first-pitch strikes, 78% with only a single walk. Uh, Both points of those things point to enviable control and aggressiveness. Uh, Also registered eight ground balls, 48% ground ball rate, uh, 29.1% CSW call plus swinging strikes. So both positive and consistent with recently minor league, recent minor league performance. Um, of course, there's only so much that we can draw from a single start. Looking at his AAA numbers from 2022, skills were on point: 28.4% strikeout rate, 8.3% walk rate, 50% ground ball rate, only five home runs in 58 innings pitched. All of those were even better than the previous year's figures in AA. So, uh, lots of good good background there for for Meyer. Uh, we'll just have to see if he's going to do better uh, than he did in that first start, which of course was nothing to write home about.
0: Dan Marcus covers the National League Central for playing time tomorrow, and in his review of the teams in that division, he says a guy to watch for the second half is outfielder Cal Mitchell of Pittsburgh, and I have to confess, haven't heard much about this guy.
3: No, I haven't either. Uh, the return of Jake Marisnik and Ben Gamel has temporarily closed off opportunities for Jake Swinski and some of Pitt, Pittsburgh's outfield prospects, but both Gamble and Marisnick are trade candidates. And while they aren't particularly likely to bring back significant returns, their departures would clear a path for playing time. Brian Reynolds is on the injured list, Suwinski back in the minors. So Cal Mitchell has already returned to the active roster after being demoted in late June. And while it would appear there's room for only one of Suwinski and Mitchell for the time being, both will likely have the chance to contribute quite a bit by the end of July. Mitchell wasn't a particularly highly regarded prospect entering the season, uh, was even denied a spot on the 40-man roster over the winter, but he's consistently shown a contact-heavy approach in the upper levels of the minors, a 16.9% strikeout rate in the AA Altoona across 419 plate appearances in 2021, 15.4% strikeout rate in AAA Indianapolis across 188 plate appearances in 2022. Uh, That's always given him a decent batting average floor and he's chipped in with some added skills in 2022 after previously showing spotty power potential. 188 plate appearances with Indianapolis. Mitchell has managed a 494 slugging percentage. Uh, Minor league numbers always need to be taken with a grain of salt, but a few things suggest that Mitchell has backed those change results with an approach that would enhance his power production. His pull rate has jumped to 44.6%, and he's combined that with just a 12.2% soft contact rate. We didn't see that approach carry over much to the majors when he first came up, 95% hard contact index, 97% expected power index, but Mitchell should have a more extended look in the final two months of the season, Uh, and there may be something there.
0: Dan also covers the National League West, and one of his picks to click was right-handed pitcher Corbin Martin of Arizona.
3: Yeah, Corbin Martin. At this point, the Arizona rotation needs to look different in the second half. Uh, Zach Davies is currently on the injured list with shoulder inflammation, with a little indication that he may return. Uh, Dallas Keuchel has been miserable since joining the Diamondbacks, and I think they DFA'd him uh, over the All-Star break. So the the best chance for the Diamondbacks to uh, shed Madison Baumgartner's bloated contact via trade, uh, he has suppressed runs successfully, even if those results belied by his supporting stats. So. It's less clear who may fill those potential vacancies. It's always fun to write up prospects such as Dre Jameson, who has had mixed results before being promoted to AAA Reno. Uh, Ryan Nelson has had a similar fate with Reno. Both are pre- possible promotion candidates. But the one that, that uh, Dan wanted to highlight was Martin, a post type sleeper. Maybe hard to remember him, but Martin was a highly regarded prospect himself prior to undergoing Tommy John surgery in June 2019. After struggling mightily with his control in 2021, uh, 14.3% walk rate over 27.1 innings in Reno, 16.3% across 16 innings in the majors, Martin has shown significant improvement in that area this season. 9.4% walk rate across 60 innings in Reno, has completed six and eight innings in his most recent starts, 25 years old on the 40 man roster, no service time consideration anymore or any other reasons that the Diamondbacks would avoid calling him up.
0: Before we leave this, Nick, I also noticed that Dan took a look at Joey Bart, the catcher in San Francisco. He had a real bad start to this year and got demoted, but, uh, Dan Marcus likes him. And now that he's been recalled and, uh, what do you think? I mean, you've been around baseball a long time and you've got a catching prospect. And one of the things we argue in Baseball HQ is that it's difficult for catchers to make the jump from AAA to the big leagues because of the defensive responsibilities weighing down on your batting possibilities. Uh, What do you think of Joey Bart as a prospect and a guy to target for this year?
3: Well, you know, you've got to remember always with a catching prospect, just as you said, there's a lot of defensive responsibility there. And and Bart was a very highly regarded prospect just a short time ago. Um, and it shows some improved skill in, in a small sample, but 40, 46% contact rate prior to his demotion. But he's increased that to 64%. So certainly, certainly some growth there. Uh, making hard contact was never a problem for Bart. And that has continued since he rejoined the big league roster. I think he's a guy to take a look at. Right now, we're only looking at 22 at-bats. So that doesn't ensure that he's turned things around. But you've got to remember, this was a very highly rated prospect, uh, and he could suddenly develop in the second half.
0: Yeah, and it's not like he's uh, trying to beat his way past uh, Mike Piazza and Johnny Bench in that San Francisco catching situation. I mean, Kurt Casali's a journeyman. Austin Wins is a journeyman. You know, they're both in their early 30s, so they're not the future of catching in San Francisco. But Bart might be, and I think that a lot will depend on San Francisco's position in the, in the playoff chase, because they can't afford to give at-bats to, to sure outs if that's what Joey Bart continues to be, but uh, they're not losing a lot if they, you know, put Joey Bart in any struggles versus what Kurt Casale does at the best of times or wins does at the best of times. So Bart may have a kind of peculiar path to playing time, but he does have a path to playing time. The problem then becomes, you know, if he hits 140 or something like that, when he's playing every day and he's really doing some damage to your
3: ratios. Right. Very definitely. So it's, you know, it's just a matter of, uh, it's one of those things that, uh, uh, depends on how long you're likely to be stuck with him, but, uh, certainly a guy to take a chance on if you're struggling to catch her.
0: And definitely, I think a guy to target in, in a trade, if you're looking for prospects, you're out of the, out of the race and you're in a dynasty or keeper kind of format and you want to shore up your catching for the future. I think Joey Bart would make an excellent candidate. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us again this week. We'll talk to you again in seven days time.
3: All right. Thank you, Patrick.
0: Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. To the American League now, and with the latest from the junior circuit, it's BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and writer, Ray Murphy. Ray, hello. Happy second half, PD. It's not the second half. You told me it's the last 42% of the the season. I don't know why it isn't. I don't know why can't they set it at the... At the halfway point, it doesn't seem like it's rocket science.
1: You're quite right. Happy last 41.2% of the season.
0: (laughs) I appreciate it. And I'll look for my card in the mail. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Let's start up in your part of the world in Boston. The Red Sox placed second baseman Trevor Story on the IL with a bruised hand. Uh, I'm assuming a hit by pitch. You can confirm that or correct it. Chris Olson covered the story for playing time today. What's the story on Story?
1: Uh, yes, it was a hit batsman uh, last weekend. I think it was Thursday in New York, a rough weekend for hands for the Red Sox in New York last week, as we'll uh, continue to get into as we go through here um, for Story's case. It sort of looked like he might be, uh, it might just be a roster machination uh, minimum. i stint around the break, um, but we're not totally sure about that yet. So, uh, you know, given the 10 days, he's got to at least miss this weekend series against the Blue Jays. And we'll see if he's ready to go uh, come the start of next week.
0: I thought the uh, timing of it, I thought his IL stint was the date of July the 14th, which would put him in uh, eligible on Sunday or is the 24th the last day of it? I guess it is. So it's Monday. He can't. I, he
1: you're did. right. It's either Sunday or Monday. I guess 10 days from Thursday Yeah, I'm not 100% clear if it's Sunday or Monday either, but I guess the best case is just the one game this weekend, if anything.
0: So if you have Friday activations or daily activations, probably stand by and hold off until you hear something more positive about Trevor Story. Uh, Jeter Downs has filled in for Story at second base. I know he's been struggling this year. How's it going?
1: Yeah, he had a big hit in, uh, in, in the Red Sox series against the Yankees in Fenway a couple of weeks ago, but, you know, by and large, it has not gone so great for him. Uh, he's hitting about 200 uh, in the bigs. He's had about 10 plate appearances since Story went on the IL, uh, and it hasn't gotten much better. Uh, the, you know, he's got an extra base hitter, too. Uh, he did hit his first home run, uh, but, uh, you know, so it, it, it's not a complete embarrassment, but his AAA performance, you know, hasn't been great either. You know, don't forget, he's really – About the fourth option at second base right now, because not only is Story out, but uh, the preferred options would have been to put TK Hernandez or even Christian Arroyo at second base for a week or two while Story was out. But both of those guys are on the I.L. as well. So uh, Downs is literally representing the fourth string option at second base here.
0: And that's not what they want, given their playoff situation and a real tough struggle in that American League East, all of a sudden, including Baltimore, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, more injury, bad news in Boston, and more to do with hands and fingers. A left-handed starter, Chris Sale, had just got back from a long absence with rib cage surgery recovery. He got into his, I think it was his second start of the year, got hit by a comeback right on the pitching hand in his second game and he broke his pinky and he had to have surgery on his pinky finger, which doesn't sound that bad. But when you're a pitcher, I suppose it's really bad. What's the update on the Boston rotation and sales status?
1: Yeah, it's not good. Uh, you know, anybody who saw the video, it was eminently obvious from the moment that sale held up his finger for the camera, that, uh, that, that the finger was broken. I think mangled would have been a better word. Uh, and you know, sales initial comment right after the game was, probably going to need four to six weeks then he went to the specialist on monday ended up having surgery to reset all of the you know smashed bones in the finger and now it's even a little worse than that it's apparently four to six weeks before he can even pick up a ball so i think that puts him in the range of a september even mid-september return and just anticipating ahead what Yeah, the penetrate situation will look like then, even if the Red Sox are still in the fight, you can imagine that the path of least resistance will be to not waste an extra three weeks after that trying to stretch Sale out. They'll probably bring him back as soon as he can, but in the bullpen. And he may very well have started his last game for the season now.
0: The Sox have some rotation options. Uh, just before the break, they got back Nathan Eovaldi, uh, Waka and Rich Hill should be back soon, uh, maybe even without rehab as- assignments. And then you've got Winkowski and Cutter Crawford. Uh, how does that all shake out? Uh, assuming that all of, all of the above get back to action and stay in the stay in the lineup.
1: Yeah, that is the quote unquote good news. Here is that we talked a week or two ago about the Red Sox. We are running a, a full rotation turn of rookies where they started four or five, uh, you know, first year guys in a row because everybody else was out. And even though they lost sale, uh, some of these other vets are coming back. Like you said, it seems like Ivaldi is definitely ready to go. Rich Hill, I believe, is slotted in the pitch on Sunday. So he is on track to be back. I'm a little less clear about Waka's timetable. It sounds like he might be at least another turn. So. When you mentioned when Winkowski and Crawford. At least one of those guys gets Sale's spot, and they're probably both in the, in the rotation for the moment, at least until Waka gets back. Winkowski's out right now. He's on the COVID list from before the All-Star break, but I assume that he'll be the fifth starter coming out of the break in Waka's spot, and he'll probably pick on him. Tuesday or Wednesday next week, and then they will have a, you know, then it becomes, I guess, start to start with when Walk is ready to drop in, whether it's next weekend or the start after that or something like that. And then they'll have to make a Crawford versus Winkowski decision for the fifth spot.
0: Or perhaps uh, going into the trade market, I was wondering if there's been any buzz in Boston media about the possibility that should the Red Sox stay you know, involved in the American League East race where they think they have a really decent shot at making the playoffs, are they likely to go out into the trade market and try to grab not an ace level guy, but certainly there's always at this time of year, there's always those third and fourth guys being bandied about.
1: I mean that's a that's a reasonable take, but when you mention the Boston media, you know they're not about the reasonable takes, right? They were, they, they went completely the other direction, and it was oh my god, Chris Sale's hurt, sell everything, you know, trade Bogarts, trade Devers, let's start over, you know, the season's over, blah blah blah, because you know Boston media.
0: <laughs> yeah, it. The big cities are like that. New York's probably pretty similar. If they lost Judge or something like that, or Judge and Cole, they'd probably start screaming, even though. You could make an argument that the teams are pretty strong without some of those guys, and of course they're stronger with them, but it's not always a disaster. It'll be interesting to watch, that's for sure. Uh, Speaking of interesting to watch, how about the Angels putting Mike Trout on the IL? He'd been complaining of back spasms and missing games, but the official diagnosis that was announced was left rib cage inflammation, and I suppose that could affect your back, but it was retroactive to July 13th, so he could be back any time now. But given the Angels' place in the, in the baseball firmament, uh, don't they have a kind of an incentive not to bring him back anytime soon?
1: Yeah, this was interesting to me. Uh, Jock uh, Thompson, our Angels beat guy, I guess suffers the PTSD that comes with being an Angels beat guy, right? Uh, you know, just a flood of bad news there. Uh, things no are kidding. not good in Anaheim these days. Uh, but I, you know, So maybe his take is a little pessimistic there. But I think he's probably got a good read on this. I think he's probably right. When I saw Trout get IL, you know, three days before the break or whatever, I thought it was more of a maintenance thing and a procedural thing to get him out of the all-star game and let him rest the, uh, the back, like you say. But now that we're post-break and it seems like he's not coming right back, even though he can on Saturday – uh, so we're you know, stay tuned. Maybe they will activate them, you know, in a couple of days. And this is a, is a non issue, but you know, Jock's point is that you know, traps into his, into his age 30 a year now. And as we get into his 30s, you know, the durability is a little bit more of a question mark. And of course, the Angels have fallen out of contention and they need to figure out what they have in Joe Adele and Brandon Marsh. So it's not to say Joe Adele and Brandon Marsh. Do anything to displace Mike Trout from a lineup, but they are disincentivized disincenti- to do anything rash with Trout, and they're going to take the super cautious route with him. And we re- we remember from last year what happened with that calf injury that ended up shut ended up costing Trout the last two thirds of the season. It seemed like he was you know perpetually two weeks away from activation that whole time. And, it, and he never actually got activated. So, you know, uh, given that recent history, I think we have to be concerned about what the seriousness of this and what it means for Trout's last 41.2% of the season until we actually see him get activated.
0: I was going to say also that Trout seems to have that football player mentality about, you know, his whole foot is hanging off by a thread, and he says, it's only a flesh wound, you know, get me back out there. The Black Knight from uh, Monty Python, and I wonder if they're going to have to, like, put a harness on him and tie him down to keep him from running out in the center field, even pr- perhaps before he's ready or certainly before they want him out there.
1: Yeah, it's a, it, it gets to be an interesting thing. I mean, we've seen in... The last couple of years, pretty much since the pandemic season, going—I think 2019 was the last season where Trout stole double-digit bases. That's pretty much out of his game now. The next step, as you suggest, is probably to rein him in defensively. Of course, they don't really have the option of, you know, hiding him at DH all that much because uh, DH is occupied by Otani. Uh, you know, there was a debate going on in our forums this week that I thought was kind of interesting because, uh, you know, somebody referenced Trout as chronically injured and and that sent me scurrying for his injury history and he used to be an iron man in his 20s right i mean all the way through before last year i think his only two dl stints were um getting hit on the wrist and then one other minimum dl stint for like a muscle pull or something like that that was it for like his entire 20s which you know is pretty much an iron man but then You know, he suddenly gets creeping toward 30. We have the short season in 2020. Last year, he misses, I think, 140 games with that calf injury. And now maybe this is nothing. Or, you know, if it turns into something, I think we sort of, you know, he does get closer to deserving that injury prone label. Guys don't get, you know, one of our axioms is guys don't get suddenly healthy in their 30s.
0: Well, I've been through my 30s and I can vouch for that. And it doesn't get any better going even later on, I can tell you that too. Uh, In Houston, the Astros got some mixed news, Ray. Uh, Designated hitter, Jordan Alvarez, was reinstated from the IL on Thursday. But they got some depressing news that outfielder Michael Brantley is not close to returning from his right shoulder discomfort problems. Uh, Jock Thompson again for playing time today. What do we make of the Houston playing time situation with this new intel?
1: Yeah, the news on Alvarez was good. This did turn out to be one of those maintenance all-star break DL stints where they shut him down I think about a week before the break and I guess he was having some I think it was chronic knee soreness if I'm not mistaken or maybe it was a wrist. I don't 100% recall. It was all oh, that's right it was the wrist hand, but and it had been bothering him for a while so they decided to give him uh you know a 10-day two-week vacation and he came back in the second game of the Doubleheader yesterday and hit a home run. Everything looks totally in the clear with Alvarez. Uh, Brantley is much more concerning. He's been out since the end of June, and uh, Dusty Baker basically said he's made no progress. So he's still at least a couple of weeks away. Uh, in terms of what that means for playing time, you know, it's been some Chas McCormick and a, a Diaz in the third outfielder spot. There, you know, the first two have kind of been uh, you know Kyle Tucker and Jake Myers of late, who have been. Uh, you know, handling two-thirds of that outfield, and it's McCormick and Diaz in the last spot. And I guess that continues for a few more weeks until we get a better look at Brantley's outlook. But as you sort of suggested with the Red Sox earlier, uh, you know, there's also a possibility where if the news on Brantley stays bad or if they just think there's an upgrade available, this becomes a spot where the Astros could go shopping for some reinforcement in the trade market here.
0: Andrew Benintendi?
1: Certainly a possibility. You know, if you're trying to replace Michael Brantley's approach, you know, Ben is one of the closer things to a carbon copy of him around the game these days. And, you know, Brantley's, you know, contact, high average, uh, you know, sp- profile just fits so well in that, uh, you know, number two ish kind of hole in that, in that Astro lineup. So, you know, Ben certainly, you know, ha- there's some logic to it.
0: And Houston has the, resources to make a deal like that I think uh, more than a lot of other teams do and of course they have tremendous incentive because they look really good this year and if they could shore up that position of course they'd look even better should mention that uh, Jose Siri was optioned to make room for Alvarez I caught a little bit of a surprise off that I thought Siri was doing better than that I don't follow the Astros that closely but what was going on with Jose Siri
1: Yeah, you know, he's gotten a couple of cups of coffee and just it seems like he has been unable to get around McCormick and Myers sort of in that, you know, Astros hierarchy uh, of reserve outfielders. And it did occur to me that when he got sent down that, you know, as you reference a move for Benintendi or anybody else, that, you know, a fresh start for Siri and making him, you know, a part of the package that goes out for whatever they go out – go out and get makes a lot of sense. I wouldn't be surprised if he is getting a uh, a major league look in another organization around, you know, August 2nd or so.
0: That's what I thought too. Uh, in Tampa, the DH utility guy, Harold Ramirez, having a pretty, pretty decent year, surprisingly to a lot of people, but he's on the IL now with a broken thumb. Four to five weeks is what they say. Sometimes it's longer the Rays always have a versatile guy or 17 to throw at a playing time problem. So what's likely to happen here?
1: Boy, I think even the uh, endless depth, depths of uh, bodies that the Rays have has been taxed by the, uh, the injury plague that they've had this year, both on the mound and in the lineup. And Ramirez had been a beneficiary of that, right? He was, as you say, uh, a fixture in that lineup and really producing and now Next man up. Uh, you know, Ramirez's, uh, you know, hit rate was propping him up a little bit, but, uh, you know, he'd been DHing. So that means just about anybody can move in there. Um, they recently acquired Christian Betancourt, who has been working at catcher, but now maybe Betancourt can get in the lineup a little bit when he's not catching via the DH. There's Luke Rayleigh, uh, who's been working a little bit in the outfield, but, um, can also get some some time at DH. The bad news is, especially if you want to DH him, that he has been struggling to put the bat on the ball. He's struck out in almost half of his plate appearances so far. So he'll have to demonstrate that he's worthy of that. But his uh he's shown some life in his bat in triple A. So he might get a look. Uh, it's probably also good news for Josh Lowe. Uh who has been working in the outfield but now gets a longer leash because uh, because of the loss of depth here. And then the other thing that I haven't seen happen yet, but I'll be looking for in the box, box, in the box scores, excuse me, this weekend is how they use uh, Brandon Lowe, who got, um, where's he, Lau? I always get confused. Um, yeah, he's Lau. He's Lau. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Brandon Lau came off the IL uh, last weekend after missing about a month. And, uh, personally, I found that super annoying because he was supposed to get activated on Friday. He didn't get activated on Friday, so I didn't activate him for the weekend in my leagues. And then he got activated Saturday and not only did he get activated, but he went like six for eight on Saturday and Sunday, which I I found super aggravating.
0: Ditto. (laughs) I have him on my tout AL team and I could have used him out there, but of course I didn't, I didn't think, and we can activate guys on non Mondays. But if we do, we have to waive somebody. We have to release somebody, and not just reserve him. You know, swap him out. So, yeah, I sat there and thought, well, what could happen? <laughs> and he had six for eighty, banging <laughs> the ball over else half acre. Yeah, it was uh, it was uh, pretty frustrating. He also got the uh, got the call up about ten minutes after we finished. Uh, Recording our session last week, and we could have had him in there and been Johnny on the spot with the news, and here we are instead talking about it a week later. Uh, With Lau's return, Ray, my whole tout American League team offense was finally back, and then the Rangers placed utility man uh, Brad Miller on the 10-day I.L. with a strained neck, and they activated Ezekiel Duran, which is pretty interesting. Rod Trusdell covers this for playing time today. What's the latest from the Lone Star State?
1: Yeah, let me just finish the, the thought on Lau first. The the, the point I was going to make was that I'll be curious this weekend to see if he ends up out in the outfield at all because his return at second base should squeeze Isaac Paredes or Taylor Walls or you know, those guys who have been filling in in the middle infield without Lau and Franco. But, uh, so I'll be curious whether Lau is discu- exclusively at second and those guys lose playing time or if Lau moves out to the outfield and – pushes Josh Lowe or Rayleigh or any of those guys to DH or to the bench. Anyway, over in Texas, uh, yeah, I was surprised to see Miller go on the IL right after the break too. Uh, th- that was another one. I, I missed my lineup deadline for that. So that was annoying. It came out right after I got locked. Um, but I guess Corey Seager, uh, was, uh, held up in LA after the all-star game. So Duran got his first start at second base and Marcus Semien jumped over to the shortstop, uh, in the Thursday afternoon game against uh, Miami on Thursday. Uh, and I guess that's kind of indicative of what we're going to see Duran do. We'll probably see him get some spot starts around the infield, maybe at DH. Uh, Elliot Hernandez is also in the DH mix. Josh Smith is getting a long look there. Um, and he's actually starting to hit after starting out 0 for 18. And he's also been leading off of a pretty regularly. So uh, Durant, that's another spot where, if Smith stays hot that's one thing but if he cools back off Duran could eat to eat it to Smith's time at third base and Duran's interesting because he's shown some good odds he's got a, an above average power index by our metrics as well as really good speed uh stubby if you've heard this before but he doesn't look very patient at the plate he's swinging at everything he's only got a 3% walk rate and a sub 300 obp so you know that's not exactly putting his speed skills to the best use but you know, uh, the versatility, the prospect pedigree, he's one of Texas better at prospects. And, you know, it certainly makes a lot of sense that whether he gets a fixed position or not, that Texas would want to take a decent look at him down the stretcher.
0: You might have been giving Duran a bit more credit than he deserved calling him a sub 300 on base percentage. It's around 280. I think of sub yeah. 300 as being like 299 or something like that. Also in Texas, they returned uh, r- relief pitcher Jonathan Hernandez to the bullpen after missing a season and a half, recovering from Tommy John and obviously an extended rehab as well. They returned A.J. Alexi to AAA to clear the roster slot. This is an interesting situation because that Texas bullpen is far from a set thing.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's perfect timing for him for just that reason because the guys who were holding down this bullpen in the first half uh, kind of uh, are vacating the premises right as Hernandez returns. And, you know, you're right, he missed a season and a half. And, you know, if you think back, uh you know, the reason we were so excited about him was he had a really good uh short season in 2020, a 290 ERA, a, a whip just to take over one, uh PPV of 123, which we really liked. And, you know, given the attrition here where Joe Barlow sort of pitched himself out of the job, uh, Matt Bush has been bouncing around, but not really done anything there. Brett Martin's been the uh, de facto closer of late, but is certainly able to be re- pushed out of that job. So uh, the, you know, he's not, well, who's a good Texas reference? Uh, he's not John Wetland. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I could go back further, but uh you know there's the there's the fireballing Texas closer that comes to mind, I guess. Uh Jose Leclerc, I think we talked about a couple of weeks, is also just back from injury and trying to find a foothold in this bullpen as well. So throwing Dennis Santana, Brock B- Burke, and yeah, it's a it's a spin the wheel every night kind of uh bullpen.
0: And in that environment, Hernandez might be a stabilizing force and certainly should be somebody that we're all looking at for this weekend's fab if he's not already picked up in your league. Uh, Speaking of bullpens, Detroit has had a surprisingly effective bullpen this year. Ray and it got a little stronger with the return of right-hander Jose Cisnero, who was out on the bereavement list. And they put right-hander Bo Brisky on the 15-day with forearm soreness to square up the rosters. Tom Kephardt covers the Tigers for playing time today. The move's nothing too critical, uh, I know, but I wanted to get your opinion of the Detroit bullpen in a larger scent. The closer is Gregory Soto, and he's been nails this season of quite a surprise, actually. And we have to consider the likelihood that he's going to be a trade chip later on this season as we get to the deadline. Who else should we be monitoring in Detroit's bullpen? Where's the opportunity?
1: Yeah, it is interesting, and I think you're right that Soto makes... I think I have a lot of sense as a trade trip, Chip. One of those guys, not necessarily as a closer, but a piece that would fit into a good bullpen. I mean, he's a lefty that throws 98. His skills aren't fantastic. You know, his expected ERA is right around a four. He's been, you know, compared that four expected ERA to a 259 actual ERA. But he's been very effective closing games for the Tigers, largely because he's cut down his walks just a little bit to kind of get them off the... You know, off the real precipice of being a disaster reliever, he's been able to sort of walk that tightrope, and you know, it has been effective. Been effective, but it makes a lot of sense that the tiger, the Tigers, would look to cash him in. And a lefty who throws ninety-eight, even with superior control pop problems, would fit in a lot of contending bullpens. So I try, I track the thought with you very much. Um, as far as who could step up in Detroit if he does, de- if he does leave right now we have Soto for 85% of the saves in Detroit with Michael Fulmer and Andrew Chafin mopping up the rest. So Fulmer and Chafin are kind of the first names that come to mind, although Fulmer could also be on the trade block. Uh, but yeah, you know, this is quietly a pretty decent pen, as you're alluding to. Alex Lang has been very good this year with an ERA of around two four, two and a half, and a BPV of 124. Will Vest has a Three and a half ERA, but an almost identical BPV, well over a hundred. And then there's you know, forgotten and uh, you know, closer from a few years ago, Joe Jimenez, who's uh, you know found his control that had deserted him for some time in the in the last couple of years. But he's got a uh, 3.28 ERA, a sub one WHIP, uh, a K caper nine of 12 and a half, and the best skills in this bullpen with a BPV of 178, which is you know more than closer worthy. And given that he's got that, you know, closer experience tag on him, I I wouldn't be surprised if he was the guy who got a call if if Soto left the trade.
0: I talked earlier with Nick about the great series our Playing Time Tomorrow analysts are doing uh, during the break. They've been identifying possible breakouts for the last 41.2% of the season. And in the American League Central, for instance, Brian Rudd picked a guy from each team in the division. They all did that. And one of his picks was Nick Gordon in Minnesota.
3: Yeah,
1: I might have been underselling Gordon a little bit. I've called him a, you know, a couple of times when we've been talking. I've been tagging him as the other center fielder not named Byron Buxton, right? And that was where, you know, I sort of thought he would get his own time when we've talked about how much, main, how many maintenance and stays Buxton's getting, et cetera, and that Gordon defensively is the preferred fill-in there. But, you know, Gordon's also finding his way to his, into the lineup and other paths, too. He started eight of the final 10 games for the Twins leading up to the break. He didn't hit much. I think he was four for 27. But, you know, there are some things in his skill set that are interesting. Um, his powers actually jumped and you don't think of him as a power guy at all, but his expected power index is up to 126 this season. Sample, sample size caveats apply, but that's 26% above average. And he's hit, and, and the, re- the way he gets there is he's hit a lot of balls hard. His hard hit rate is up to 50%, which is uh, 93rd percentile. I think he's barreling the ball more, almost double what it was last year. Um, and his max exit velocity you know is uh of over 110 is quite good too so he's really stinging the ball um and that that skill that's emerging goes along with the skill he's always had which is the speed 10 of 11 stolen bases last season he's been caught a couple times this year he's only 3 for 6 but we know he can run
0: the problem is the twins don't run i think they have the fewest stolen base attempts In maybe the American League for sure, but uh, possibly in all of Major League Baseball. So I guess the possibility is maybe they let him run because they need to score some runs, but the Twins are not a running team. We'll put it that way. So we can't count on Gordon for full-time play, but I think he could generate some deep league value, even if he's only playing like half the time or three quarters, especially if he starts to run.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And now as we get deeper into the season here and all of our roster moves get more category dependent, you know, a five or seven stolen bases from Gordon could be enough to, you know, for the right team in the right place could swing, you know, five category points from the bottom of a bottom of a cluster to the top. So if you find yourself in that kind of situation, then, yeah, Gordon is someone who absolutely should be on your radar.
0: And given how versatile he is, he's got a path through injury. And heaven knows Byron Buxton hasn't exactly been an iron man out there either. In the American League West, Ray, uh, Jock Thompson likes former Rookie of the Year. I think he was a Rookie of the Year. Uh, Kyle Lewis in Seattle.
1: Yeah, Lewis has been you know suffering with some. I don't know if the word chronic or repeated is better applicable to the situation, but some recurring knee injuries uh, that have sort of derailed his entire career. But the uh most recently since uh, the, the lengthy attitude uh, IL he's had for the last month or so uh, maybe even longer than that since the beginning beginning of June is more of a concussion after uh, getting hit, hit by a ball with a plate and not a not a hit by pitch I think it was a ricochet throw or something wasn't it um but before that he was act- you know going back to May he was actually you know just starting to come to life and had a couple of home runs um, most encouragingly I think he'd only struck out. Once in 15 at bats, it was really a cup of coffee before he got shut down. Um, So now he's back on a rehab, uh, just got back up to triple A. And he's hitting again, uh, five for nine with four homers. I think I saw when I glanced at it the other day. So he's nearly ready to come back. And we got to think he's at least going to get semi-regular work at the corner outfields and in the DH spot, maybe more if he hits. You know, and if you take his aggregate MLB history, he should hit in 480 career plate appearances, 24 home runs with a 258 batting average. So, you know, that is something that should spark the Twins lineup and spark them to play him, you know, at least most of the time, I would think. But of course, the caveat there is he's got to be healthy for more than five minutes. And it's been a while since that was the case. So uh, if he's available in your league and he's back in the lineup early next week, you know, he's going to get some run and let's see what happens.
0: Lewis was the rookie of the year in the twenty twenty the short season. In the American League East, Chris Olson of baseballhq.com spotted a flock of Orioles, including right-handed starter Jordan Lyles.
1: Yeah, the, Jordan Lyles has quietly been a quality start machine for the uh you know the resurgent Orioles. Uh, his PQS log goes three 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 four two three. And you know, we make jokes a lot about you know, would you rather have the guy who hangs up all threes or the guy who goes one five, one five, one five, one five? And you'd rather have the one five guy because, you know, he's got a higher ceiling if he harnesses his, his potential. But, you know, let's not totally scoff at the three, 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 three guy either. There's, uh, you know, there's some value there. And Wiles' ERA across that stretch is a, a sparkling 332. Uh, his expected ERA is a bit of a run, about a run higher. So, you know, there's some good fortune going on there. But, You know, this is one of those things where a average pitcher on a bad team is, you know, generally more downside than upside and not something we get all that excited about from a fantasy perspective. But, you know, we've got to stop calling the Orioles a bad team, right? This is now an average pitcher on an average team. And that means you've got at least some matchup flexibility there. And there are going to be some outings where, you know, where he's appealing, especially if some of the benefit he's getting is from the – the reconfigured Camden Yards.
0: One of the best features at Baseball HQ, or at least one of the ones I like the best, is called the Facts and Fluke Spotlight, where we take a performance validation approach to a single player and really get in there. Those stories, I think, run 1,200, 1,500 words plus charts and graphs and all that other kind of stuff. I know I like writing them and I'd really like reading them. And Stephen Nickrand had a Facts and Fluke Spotlight drop this week looking at Alejandro Kirk, the sensational find of the year in Toronto, all-star of in his second year. Um, I think he was the leading vote-getter at catcher, in fact. A, a bit unusual at Baseball HQ to put the facts and fluke spotlight on a player with such a limited resume. He's barely got a full season worth of stats, but it was a really interesting analysis and there was a lot of good data here.
1: Yeah, it was a great choice by Steven. We you know, we, we often bat around in discussion threads who are good candidates for this kind of deep dive treatment. And like you say, generally a second year player without you know a, a multi-year body of work would kind of get crossed off the list because we like to have larger sample sizes to work with. But Kirk's skill set and what he does well, and you know the way he's deriving his value is so unusual and even unique in this in today's game. Let alone for a catcher, that um, you know I, I was really glad Stephen pushed to do this because um, because it just illustrates a lot of cool things about what Kirk is doing, and it's always a great overview of. There are so many different ways, um, there's so many different profiles that, that can succeed these days. Uh, what we found with Kirk and what Stephen highlighted is sort of his baseline, his fundamental skill is that he makes so much contact. You know, he almost never strikes out. He, you know, 90 plus percent um, contact rate that, it, you know, is, is, is elite and almost unheard of in today's game. The thing about it, though, is most of the other guys who live in that neighborhood are your slap hitters, your your sort of noodle bats, the guys who just kind of, you know, put the bat on the ball a lot, but not much good happens when they do, right? Luis Arias. Yeah, you, exactly. And if they're fast, you know, that's great for stolen base value. Or if you're Luis Arias, you know, you can you can prop up, uh, you know, especially when the uh, BABIP gods are with you, with you, you can pop up a, uh, a really nice batting average, even though it's rel- relatively empty in terms of power and speed. Kirk's not like that though. Not only does he hit the, hit the ball with great regularity, he hits the ball hard. He's got great barrel rates and hard hit percentages. So you put all those things together and you know, that's great news, right?
0: Oh, it really is. And, and he's really got terrific plate discipline as well. There's, there are players who manage to get pretty good strikeout rates or contact rates but the way they do it is by hacking away at everything and just fouling things off until they put the ball into play weekly. And I don't think, to your point, th- that's not the case with Alejandro Kirk. His whiff rate is 95th percentile. He very rarely swings and misses. And like you said, when he puts the bat on the ball, he puts the bat on the ball. He's really uh, He's really pounding the ball out there I'm more of a maximum exit velocity guy than a, than an average uh, exit velocity guy. His average exit velocity is 90th percentile. His max is only in the mid sixties, but the mid sixties, when you're making this much contact probably is plenty.
1: Yeah, it's exactly right. And Steven had some really cool charts in here, uh, diving into some, uh, fan graphs and stat cast data that I don't look at that often, but to your point about the great eye, uh, you know, the reason why his whiff rate is so good that he almost never swings and miss, misses is that he almost never swings at anything out of the zone, which is just an amazing skill. Like, he'll ama- he'll, if anything, his one weak spot is he'll swing at balls that are down below the zone, which sort of explains why he's got, um, you know, the weakness in his armor is that he hits a lot of ground balls. And given, how, given his body type and how slow he is, ground balls are you know, very frequently going to be outs for him, but he does not swing too far inside, too far outside or high. You know, he very much is attacking the strike zone and you can imagine therefore with that kind of discipline, that sort of the last piece of the puzzle is just getting a, even a little bit more selective from taking, taking his, you know, his excellent eye from that's not a strike to that's a strike, but maybe I should take it and wait for another pitch. I can really drive right and lay off, you know, there's some kind of those low balls that he hits hard but into the ground more often. And that's why Steven sort of suggests that, you know, I that, um, sort of the big question here is whether, you know, he sticks with the current profile and is kind of a 20 home run hitter or whether he can sort of refine his launch angle the fall in the air more lay off of those balls that so he pounds into the ground and, you know, graduate to, you know, being even better and maybe having a 30 plus home run season uh, ceiling. And I'm pretty optimistic about it. After looking at all this data, I think it's, I think it's fascinating and he's still a work in progress, but he's so good. You know, the building blocks he has are just so fascinating.
0: Yeah. yeah. And that, even that low ball thing, one of the charts that Stephen put in is a, the map of the strike zone, the really detailed one that you can get from, uh, I think Brooks has them and, uh, and uh, the Statcast doesn't. I don't think they're this detailed or this granular, but if you look at the low part of the zone or even be below the zone, he's hitting like 700 on balls that are down and in it's balls down in a way that he's struggling with. And that might be sliders. You know, yeah, when you think about yeah, that kind exactly of thing,
1: right. Maybe it's a question of, you know, plugging that last hole in his swing, which is the, uh, you know, the, the, the hole that so many other right-handed hitters have trouble with is that slider diving, uh, diving down and away out of the strike zone that you just can't always lay off. Right.
0: Yeah. And then there's a second chart that Steven has, which is his swing profile and those, swings at the balls that are down, especially down and away are disappearing. He's got one weak spot at the very outside of the plate and below the strike zone, almost in the dirt. And again, to me, that looks like sliders that are just catching him off guard or that are just fooling him. And that happens to the best hitters. But the fact is this guy has a really good eye at the plate. And as we both agree this, when the ball hits the bat, the ball hits the bat. There's not much to, to argue about there.
1: Yeah, when you can, you know, when you combine the, uh, you know, the ability to discern balls from strikes, decide what he wants to swing at, and then hit it hard when he does, you know, that everything to get better from there is just tweaks, right? There's no, there's no missing baseline skill. He's got all the raw tools, and it's not an uncommon path to see these disciplined hitters develop more power as they get more experience it's not because they're a big, bigger stronger or faster but it's more just about them figuring out which pitches are the right ones to attack it's kind of the um you know i i being the boston guy i kind of equate it to the kevin uh kevin Euclid's profile you know who came up as the greek out of walks but the power took a little longer to develop but you weren't surprised that Did because you know he was such a disciplined hitter that it was just a matter of you know getting into a mindset of using that selectiveness to pick out the pitches that he can really drive.
0: Agreed, it's a terrific piece of analysis by Stephen Nickrand. As we said, there's lots of charts and graphics uh, as well as written analysis. This is first-class work, and it's a really good example of Baseball HQ at work, and best of all, it's free. They put it outside, well, you put it outside the paywall, I guess we should say, so even if you're not a team member at BaseballHQ.com, you can check it out and see why we call the site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because of this kind of stuff. Finally, Ray, uh, Toronto made a bit of sad news uh, this week. They released Sergio Romo, the ageless one. He's been kind of sidestepping retirement for a while, but is this the end of the Romo slow mo?
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like it might be. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody else takes a look at him and tries to, you know, turn him into something that could help down the stretch. But you know, he's been bouncing around, sort of losing a little bit of effectiveness each, each year, but making a uh, making a living as sort of a righty on righty specialist. But you know, that gets tougher to do with the three batter minimum. Uh, you know, the 750 era he hung up in 18 innings of work this year certainly suggests that he's done. His velocity is all the way down to about 85, which is, I think, the range of the guy using the uh, throwing the Vaseline ball on major leagues. So, yeah, that's uh, yeah, there, there's really not much left in the tank there, but you know, the end comes for everybody. And in Romo's case, if this is the end, you know, what a great career! Almost 800 games, 137 saves. A career three ten ERA with just to take over one seven hundred plus innings pitched. I mean, quite a run going all the way back from uh, you know two thousand eight scraping, uh, scraping a fifteen year career.
0: It was a terrific career, and uh, if this is the end of Sergio Romo, he I think he can go out with his head held high, and uh, you can't say much more than that that any player could want. Uh, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out with this week with the American League. We'll talk to you again in seven days' time.
1: Looking forward to it, PD.
0: Ray Murphy is a co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Ian Kahn from the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. He'll be coming up for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I want to remind you about some other great stuff from Baseball HQ, In the Facts and Fluke Spotlight on the site, analyst Stephen Nickrand will be diving deep on Toronto's breakout catching star Alejandro Kirk. In the next edition of the Eyes Have It podcast that dropped on Tuesday of this week, Brent and Chris are joined by baseball HQ analyst Jock Thompson. We know him. They'll be talking about the Futures game batting practice. And speaking of podcasts, don't miss the next edition of this one. Baseball HQ Radio will be back next week with another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Rudy Gamble from Razzball, plus all the usual great stuff, National and American League news, Baseball HQ commentaries, and Rudy Gamble next Friday on another Friday full edition of
2: Baseball HQ Radio.
4: (laughs)
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, PD here. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Ian Kahn from the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Ian, welcome back to part two. Thank you so much. In a discussion of how to manage stolen bases on one of your recent pods, you talked quite energetically about how stolen bases are especially important in dynasty formats. And I was wondering why you thought that about dynasty formats in particular.
2: Well, uh, the reason is because guys who will steal bases for you are great trade chips and trading is such a major part of Dynasty Leagues. So the ability to get uh, guys, you know, it's all about sort of buying them low and then growing them and then selling them right at the right moment where you can get the most value for them. And stolen bases are always so very much in demand that for me, I'm always looking for stolen bases. I'm just looking for in minor league players, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just always story Ruiz, 60 stolen bases. So far this season If story Ruiz comes up and has any kind of success over the course of the next little bit. You can get almost anybody you want for him because the idea of being able to solve your stolen base problem, because it's always an issue for people. It's the stolen base problem. So that's why for me in dynasty leagues and in, in, in keeper leagues is slightly different because there's uh it's just slightly different somehow because you're not playing for the future as much as you are in the dynasty format.
0: Huh. Most of us tend to conflate dynasty and keeper formats as pretty much the same thing, except of course, you've got the whole contract issue in, in most keeper leagues, there's some kind of salary escalator that comes into play, but that, that's pretty interesting. Uh, what do you think about managing prospects in keeper and dynasty formats? I'll call them multi-year, uh, multi-year league formats. Prospect management plays such a critical role. How do you go about it and um, how, how is it different from dynasty to keeper, if at all?
2: It's very different. It, it's very rare that I'll pick up a prospect and keep him all the way until he becomes a major league player. It's very rare. It happens occasionally, but it's very, very rare. I see them mostly as chips to be used dynasty. I I think of it sort of like gardens, you know, it's like you you plant the seeds and you want to watch them grow in keeper leagues. I'm trading them first chance I get to help me when I'm in competition mode. So it's, it's even more rare. Although then there are times like with Steve Gardner and I, where we have completely rebuilt the team and we have accumulated a remarkable, uh, group of prospects that we're going to grow with because just because of the contracts in that league is, is, is very unique because it only goes up $3. If you raise the kid yourself, whereas, uh, so, so it, it, really depends on the format that it it will shift for me, but, um, dynasty uh, dynasty is very sweet. Uh, but keeper might be more fun.
0: I like keeper leagues uh, just because of that added angle, and I treated uh, prospects exactly like you did. I th- To me, they were just uh, bargaining chips that I could trade something that might pan out down the road for something that was a more sure thing while I was competing this year. I like that part of it a lot. In this week's Under the Radar Pod, uh, you and Derek and your guest, Ariel Cohen, we mentioned, uh, got into an interesting talk about multi-year leagues, and one of the obvious problems that you guys discussed is getting a league where the league mates stay in the league over the long haul because nothing's worse than having to recruit a couple of new owners every year. I've been there and done that. And there's a lot of hassles in how to deal with the long-term contracts that the leaving person left behind, future considerations in trades involving that departed guy. One of your ideas that you talked about was relegation. Uh, I know what that is in uh, European soccer, but how does it work in fantasy baseball?
2: You know, I haven't really figured it out fully, uh, unfortunately, but um, I, I feel like the, the thing the thing that I don't love is people are like, well, you know, he's in the league or she's in the league and she's paying her money and so she gets to stay in the league. No, nah, I don't think so. I, I feel like if you're not working hard to make your team better, then you don't deserve to be in the league. It depends on what the league is. I mean, but if it's a industry league or, or a a league with really good players, if you have a weak player, if you have a couple of weak players at the bottom of your league, it can really throw off the balance. So um, I I also, one of the things I think is challenging is when you have teams that just sort of uh, rebuild from the draft completely and don't even try to put together a team, just setting themselves up for the first round draft pick the next year. Uh, I, I don't really like that. I think you should have to, field the team just the way the Oakland A's field the team. And so, you know, I think if, if you had something in the first year of a league where if it's a 15 team league and the bottom team or the bottom two teams are out and people want to stay in the league, they'll figure out a way to keep their fan base happy. Let's think of it that way. You know, you're not going to go 40 and one twenty two, and you shouldn't. So, uh, you know, that's metaphorically, of course. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, that, that that's the thought I haven't quite locked it in, but, It's something that I'm thinking about.
0: Yeah. When I think of relegation, especially in the soccer context, it's they kick you down into a lower league, but in, in fantasy baseball, there's no lower league to kick them into basically, unless you set that up, which would be really cool. But, uh, it seems to me that this method of kicking guys out of the league would pretty much just be guaranteeing what you're trying to fix. You have to recruit new league members every year. You don't want to. But if your solution is to kick guys out of the league, now you're guaranteeing that you have to do that every year. Uh, You also had an idea of making members prepay their fees for several years in advance and no refunds. How did you think that would help?
2: Well, I think if you, let's say, and it requires a certain amount of uh, economic flexibility to be able to pull this off. But if you buy into a league for 10 years, like if people buy in for a league for three years, you're only guaranteed that your league is going to last for three years. Because at that point it's like, well, I signed a three-year contract with you and I'm on my way out. And that's just the way it is. But if you sign a 10-year contract and the money is already in there, and if you say, well, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be in this league. Then all of a sudden you kind of got it. And and if you don't, you can be kicked out and then you lose your buy-in for that time. So it's something that would keep people perhaps more engaged. And it's from the beginning. Like you, you have to sort of have an understanding of what you're buying into, not just ah sure I'll do it. It's like no, really, you got to think about it because it's going to require time, it's going to require uh, effort, and so yeah. So that that that's my thinking about it. Say even if it's a fifty dollar buy-in, you buy in for ten years, and there's no there's you know you can't sell your team to another team to take over. Like they that whoever comes in is going to have to pay, and that money, the money that has now been lost to the league will go into winnings for maybe we'll do a fourth place team for a couple of years with that extra money. I don't know. It's, it's not very nice. What I'm saying, it's not very like, Oh, well it's okay. It's only a game. No, it's like, all right, you want to play with the big boys and the big, big women. Uh, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta pony up a little bit. You gotta pony up your, your energy, your effort, your time.
0: When I played in a long running keeper league and we had a real steady drumbeat for a while, team managers dropping out sometimes two and three at a time. And mostly because what we were recruiting was guys who basically said they liked baseball and that was good enough. And it turned out that they didn't like it well enough to to devote the time necessary to it. And we were having a lot of trouble with guys who were bidding aggressively on uh, players and then giving them long-term contracts to keep them even longer, then leaving the league. And so they didn't actually pay any penalty for having these long-term contracts. So one of the ideas we considered was if you wanted to raise a guy three extra years, extend his option for three extra years, you had to prepay your fees for all three years and you didn't get them back. Yeah. And yeah. unfortunately we didn't get that through because there's too many guys in there that didn't want to pay it. Then I was talking to the guy who actually set up the league, uh, and we came up with an idea to restart the league, but charge everybody who wanted to be in it a franchise fee of maybe 10 times the entry fee. We would use the, (laughs) this sounds crazy now that I'm saying it, but the interest on the pool of fees would be used to operate the league stats, site, trophy engraving, the season ending party interest rates were a lot higher then, and there would still be the annual fees for the prize pool. But the kicker was contrary to what you said a minute ago, if you wanted to leave the league, you could but you had to sell your franchise because you weren't getting any of your money back and you had to sell your franchise to someone the league would approve as a new member. So you could just couldn't hand it to the next dunce who came along, but no refunds. What do you think of the idea of selling franchises in the league for fairly significant and non-refundable fees?
2: I, 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 I get where you're coming from. The problem then becomes, then it's like a, a co-op board in a way, right? Where it's like, well, he's like, I want out. I want out. And I, this guy's willing to take it. The reason I I think that might be challenging is I'd rather be, if I'm commissioner of this league, I'm the one who decides who comes into this league. That's how it works. You don't get to decide, oh, my friend Jim wants to take it over, so he can take it over and he's willing to pay me, so sorry. No, 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 no. No, because you're a bad owner. And because you're a bad owner, the guy you're going to bring in probably going to be a bad owner. I'm going to bring in a really good owner to take over that team. And, you know, sometimes I've been in leagues where we've given uh, players – a uh you know a couple of years where they don't even have to pay because the team is in such bad shape. So, you know, it's 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 a it's a challenging situation. It's it's one of the hardest parts about uh dynasty leagues. But if you can get yourself into a good one where people play the game the right way, it can be it can be a tremendous asset for in terms of fun, but also really in terms of learning the players. So I, I don't know, it's interesting. It's interesting this franchise idea.
0: Yeah, I think uh, they're doing something like that with AutoNew. I don't know if you play AutoNew, but I've talked to people who do and they really like it, and there's, I don't think there's a financial incentive to stay in the league, but I think the incentive there is the league is so involved and complicated that once you've invested a couple of years in laying your foundations and getting your prospects in line and stuff like that, you don't want to give it up because now you've got, you know, you've got a psychological stake in the game, if not a financial one.
2: That's true. That's true. I've never played it on now. no. Do you like it?
0: I don't play it uh, either. Just again, the prospect of playing a keeper league, it was just something I wasn't prepared to do because I was working and stuff like that. Um, Ian, you've always had a lot of keen observations about prospects. You write a regular, regularly before season start about the best prospects and stuff like that. Did that interest begin and grow because of your involvement in fantasy or were you a prospect guy before that?
2: Oh, it was all fan. I really haven't written much lately um, because uh, work has been so crazy. And I apologize to everybody who's waiting for the new dynasty ranks. They will eventually come out. Um, hopefully I was hoping by the all-star break, but yeah, yeah. maybe by the August 1st deadline. Um, the uh, no prospects started with that first team where I rebuilt a team. All I had on that team was Andrew McCutcheon, a young Andrew McCutcheon, a young Ryan Braun and a young someone else. And I traded them for Dylan Bundy, Jerkson, Profar, and Travis Darnell, right? Who are now guys who I own in leagues. And none of the three of them really turned out in anything as special as what was promised. Um, But it really, I I just became really fascinated by it. I I would not consider myself a prospect expert at this point at all. I think there was a period of time where I was looking into it far more deeply. Um, But it's fun. It's fun. And I always keep, I'm, I'm always pretty very clear on who's coming up and uh, who's, you know, who, who we should be looking for. Um, But uh, James Anderson over at RotoWire that's he's, he's my guy. We shared a team for a number of years and uh, he actually shares his list with me, which I'm always grateful for. So I can always look at where he's thinking about stuff. And I call him, I call Jeff Pontus from time to time as well to talk to him about players and, and sort of get their uh, feelings on stuff and on, on guys. If I'm making a big trade, so, yeah, but it's a, it's a major part of dynasty leagues and, and definitely something that'll teach you a lot about the game.
0: And I, as I think we talked about earlier, being in a dynasty league and knowing about that is a real help in your, in your single year leagues as well, because the prospects keep coming and they're very important to try to get a hold of before anybody else. You mentioned a couple of guys that you talked to, do you have any online tools or anything along those lines to stay abreast?
2: Um, I always like the baseball HQ, the prospector, and I like the minor league uh, report. I get that every year. Uh, so that's always fun. Um, and then I just, I look at a lot of lists. I look at a lot of lists and sort of try to compare. And then I make my own sort of list. But again, I, I, I lean on James a lot. I lean on, on other, other people like that uh, when it comes to the prospect world and then use that you know, when I, when I do my dynasty list, but it's also, you know, it's also my own eye test. I try to watch, I don't play fantasy football at all. Like I don't even, I I don't know it. Don't play it. Don't follow it. Don't watch football. So for me, when November hits from November through January, or really I think people start looking at fantasy football now. So, but certainly from November till January or February, All I'm doing is figuring out the prospects. That's when I really do deep dives on prospects. And I I actually have become fascinated by the MLB draft. So I I enjoy looking a couple of years in advance as well.
0: What are you looking for when you're trying to identify players, prospects who might be of interest to fantasy managers in the current season?
2: Ooh, um, that's a good question. Uh, Playing time, opportunity, and what they're doing in the minors. And what kind, there's always an adjustment period. You know, you look at Nolan Jones, Nolan Jones right now looks like a really, really good baseball player. I would say three years ago, he was a top 50 prospect. Then the shine went off. There's a lot of injuries, a lot of problems. He comes up, he's doing great, Nolan Jones. Yeah, but the league hasn't figured him out yet. And the league will figure him out. And when they do, he's going to, he's going to slow down quite a bit. Um but I'm looking for opportunity. I'm looking for at bats. I'm looking like Christopher Morrell. I was like in NL Tata. I was like, Hey, you know what? Who's this kid? Wow, well, look at that. Oh, he's still some bases too. All right. Let me look at it. Oh, I like this kid. I like the way he bounces around the bases. I like how he looks when he's up at the plate. All right. I'm going to take a chance on that guy. So that, that tends to be, uh, how I look at it.
0: Yeah. When I looked at, uh, Christopher Morrell earlier this year, I lost in the bidding. But one of the things I thought of to your point is Chicago needs him, (laughs) you know, they need somebody like him to, and and if he plays and does anything at all, I think he had a lot of run and and it turned out he did. Uh, You mentioned the draft, it was held within the last week or so. I don't know exactly when, and I don't think we need to go into it in great depth because it's certainly lots of discussion elsewhere. But I was curious about your take on a couple of things first, what did you think of Texas taking a shot at Kumar Rocker with the third overall? Quite a surprise.
2: It was a bit of a surprise uh, and kind of exciting. I was happy for him that, you know, after what happened with the Mets last year, it felt somewhat unfair, really. It, it seems unfair that he kind of just, and, and, then, and then the Mets get Kevin Parada <laughs> the next year. It's, it's sort of, there's, you know, upside for major league teams not to sign players. If you think that next year's draft is going to be much better than this year's draft. Um, but so I was very happy for him. I find it interesting that lighter and Kumar rocker who were together at Vanderbilt are now going to be together in the Texas Rangers rotation one day, hopefully. And that's pretty exciting. So I was happy for him. Yeah.
0: What do you think of him as a prospect?
2: I think he's great. I think he's a, I, I think he's a beast. I think he throws hard, he's a big, strong pitcher Got Nolan Ryan, J.R. Richard vibes for me. Um, and I like his, I, I like his energy on the mound, I haven't seen much of him, just college stuff in preparation for last year's draft. And there's not much from him in, in the independent ball that he's been playing. But he, from the word on the streets, he's thrown in the high 90s again. Uh, so, yeah, I think. And if I, I believe that Major League Baseball teams pretty much know what they're doing. So if they're going to take him at three ahead of Tamar Johnson at four. Now, the Rangers have Seager and Simeon there for a really long time. So, like, that makes a certain amount of sense, too. Right. But he's the number one pitcher taken in the league. You know, he's the number one pitcher that went, so good for him.
0: I often wonder about that. Uh, I don't know Texas's reputation for drafting and developing guys, but uh, the fact that they were willing to take that shot, I think is really interesting. And it raises Kumar Rocker in my estimation a little bit. I think I, if I was in a dynasty league and was looking at draft picks, I, I might look at Kumar Rocker differently now than I would have Two weeks one, ago, one, for sure. One
2: one thing to add to that, Patrick, he also took a really uh, cheap contract. So he, instead of getting 8 million, $7.5 million, which is pretty much what the slot was, he signed for $5.2 million, which then gives the Rangers the opportunity to draft kids later that are in high school and give them bigger bonuses. It's just weird how the MLB draft works. But I think that that was part of it as well. And I think that they they offered Rocker a little bit more money than he would have gotten last year with the Mets. It's all psychology
0: which member of this year's draft class do you think is going to make it to the majors first? <laughs> I'll say
2: rocker. I'll say rocker just cause I, I don't think he's going to be the, 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 the most special player from the draft. And and there may be other guys that I'm not thinking of that are later. Um, Parada is interesting to me. It really is. That's a really interesting piece. Um, but rocker, he, he could be up next year. I mean, he, he could be in a bullpen. He could be in the Rangers bullpen, early next year, he could be in the Rangers bullpen this year. I mean, you never know. So, uh, yeah. but the guy I like, I like Tamar Johnson an awful lot. I just love the hit tool on that kid.
0: I like Jacob Berry uh, Miami picked him number six and drew Gilbert yeah. in Houston. He's a center fielder and, uh, looks like there, that might be a need, which is something that matters as well. Uh, in recent under the radar pods, you've talked about some prospects arising out of the discussion of stolen bases. And one of them was Bubba Thompson of Texas.
2: Yeah, that's a Nando DeFino pick. I mean, Nando is a genius when it comes to this stuff. Like, he he just looks at uh, minor league MILB.com and just looks up home runs and stolen bases and OBP, and it comes in. Boba Thompson, guys. Boba Thompson's going to be huge. 43 stolen bases. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, but that's a, that's another Dynasty League pickup because all of a sudden he comes up to the majors. He gets in. I think it's going to be tough now, Leori Tavares. Uh, I think maybe Leody Tavares is one of the reasons why Elijah Green did not get picked by the Rangers as well, is Tavares is finally looking like he could be the guy. Um, But if Bubba Thompson comes up and steals three bases in the first week and hits really well, you could trade him for a a starter in a minute. You could just turn around and trade him. So, you know, that's why I'm always looking for those stolen base guys.
0: Only two caught stealings in AAA uh, with that 43 stolen bases, which is really important because teams are getting smart about not drafting guys who'll, you know, steal your 43 and get caught 37 times are not really helping. Uh, The Yankees' top prospect, uh, shortstop Anthony Volpe, got off to a pretty slow start in the minors, hitting barely over the Mendoza line through May with, I think, four or five home runs. But he's really turned on the jets since, and he's batting over 300, uh, and he's 35 for 39 in stolen bases overall. But it seems when you look at Yankees prospect, they're always all blocked at the big league level because the team is so aggressive about signing free agents. How soon do you think we might see Volpe in a big league uniform and how likely that the uniform is a Yankees pinstripes?
2: Unless uh, unless Volpe is going to be playing for the Washington Nationals with Juan Soto coming to the Yankees, I really don't see Volpe not being uh, in, in a Yankee uniform in the middle of 2023 Um, and eventually in 2024, being the starting shortstop, uh, everyday shortstop, they love him. Uh, he struggled, as you said, and has come along great. He's, he's good. The kid is good. Um, and Peraza also in the Yankee system is good. I mean, if they, I'm getting into Juan Soto will just take us down a whole nother labyrinth that I don't even think we have time to get into, but, uh, no, I think, I think it's Volpe. I think it's Volpe for the Yankees. And I think it's mid 2023, maybe even early 2023.
0: A lot of the Yankees trade buzz is about the team acquiring a true center fielder for this year, but how possible is it that they already have what they need in Estevan Florial? He's got 28 stolen bases this year and 12 home runs to boot.
2: I think uh, Florial is more likely to be traded. Miguel Andujar should be traded because he should be playing every day. Um, I just dropped Joey Gallo in the Dynasty League, by the way, last night. Rob and I dropped Joey Gallo. Can you believe it? We dropped Joey Gallo in yeah. a 15-team uh, we had Whitlock coming off the I.L., Evaldi coming off the I.L., and we needed. And we moved morell down to the minor leagues, and we dropped Joey Callow, for gosh sakes. Um, Florio's interesting. He's been around for a while. Uh, he's got that power-speed combo. He's an interesting player. I think Aaron Judge is a pretty darn good center fielder, though. I really do. I, I watch him every day. I, I can only think of one player where I was like, ooh, he might have been able to make that play, and I can think of numerous players where I'm like, wow, he made that play. So, you know, he was a center fielder all the way coming up through high school and college. Um, so I, I, don't know that we need to find a center fielder. I think that would make judge sad. I think judge likes being out there, but Florio interesting player. if he's available in your dynasty leagues, definitely worth a, a stash in your minor leagues.
0: Yeah. I think the Yankees use their minor leaguers as much as you and I do in dynasty. They're things you use to get other guys later. I think, as you said, Volpe might be, uh, the exception to test the rule, Staying in New York, James McCann is hurt. The Mets catcher and the team is starting Thomas Nido most days behind the plate. He's hitting barely over 200. His OPS is under 500. Uh, I wonder about their catching situation. And there's a catching prospect, Francisco Alvarez, who was really thrashing in Double A, but I think has scuffled since getting up to Triple A. How interested should we be in Alvarez for this season as a potential call-up and in multi-year leagues?
2: In multi-year leagues, he should be an absolute target. In two catcher leagues, he should be an absolute target. He's a masher, as you said. He's twenty years old, really thrived in Double A after a little while of struggle. Uh, now up in Triple A, but I did see an interview with Buck Walter. I like the interviews with the managers where he was talking about the question he asks all minor league uh, managers is two things, and he was in this was in reference to Alvarez. Will he? Uh, how is his defense? And how does he get on with his teammates? which is another thing that I'm always looking at. I always try to see how is a player with his teammates. That's why Clint Frazier was never a favorite of mine because I was like, his teammates don't like him. Like he, he's sort of a, anyway, I can get down a the road there, but um, Francisco Alvarez, I think, I, I just traded for James McCann and NL tout wars with Brian Walton. Um, and because I picked up Thomas Nito because Yadier Molina is on the IL and, uh, I, my, my question is whether Wilson Contreras ends up on the Mets. If not, I do see the possibility of Alvarez showing up sometime in August, maybe after they trade Dominic Smith, where there's talk of that. I could see him just being a, a designated hitter for the team. But at the same time, that doesn't matter in fantasy because he's got catcher eligibility. And if he's up, even playing three, four t- days a week as a DH, he's worth rostering. I already picked him up in NL Tout Wars. About a month ago, I had to stash him. I had to play him for a week, but no worse than what else is happening. The following week, I picked up Nito because McCann had just got injured. And then later that day, I traded for McCann. And now I have the Mets catching situation on that team, which is a a decent situation to be in. I'd say it's a 50-50 for Alvarez.
0: You mentioned the Mets drafted Kevin Parada from Georgia Tech. 11th overall, he's a catcher. I'm just curious what you think about the truism we hear that catchers lag other position players in moving up the ladder because of the challenge of getting their receiving, their defense where it needs to be. Is that still as true as it was 15 years ago?
2: I don't think so. If you look at Alejandro Kirk, um, I don't think it's quite as true. But, you know, Francisco Mejia, it's taken him a couple of years. He's hurt now, I think, again, but it's taken him a couple of years to really feel comfortable. Uh, up in the major. So I guess there's some truth to it, but then Alejandro Kirk is one of the best, most valuable players going. Um, I love catchers though. That was the position I played growing up. So I have a, I have a, I have a, A soft spot in my heart for
4: catchers.
0: Yeah, I caught some too. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ian Kahn from the Athletic and the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Prospect, a.k.a. Under the Radar. And uh, as you know, Ian, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes, players you like, players you don't for the rest of the season. Uh, Let's start with your boons, players who look like good value for the balance of the year in the American League. Who's a batter boon?
2: I, I'm going to say Teoscar Hernandez because he's just turning it back on. Most of my boons are guys who seem to get better as the season goes along. And Teoscar's turning it on. And one thing I always look for is stolen bases. Guys, all of a sudden, if they're struggling and then they start stealing bases, I think it, it puts them in a better headspace to play the game. Teoscar's starting to run. Teoscar's starting to hit. That's my boon.
0: I've noticed over the years too, that sometimes when players start to run, it helps them start to hit. It may, may be yep. freeing in some way. I, I don't know. Exactly, That's uh, my theory. How about a uh, National League batter who could be a boon?
2: Justin Turner. I'm going to say Justin Turner. So Justin Turner has been struggling and struggling and struggling, right? But Justin Turner always kind of finds his numbers. And I have a feeling that Justin Turner, the, the, you know, the season's going on. I think he's a cheap option and i think he'll grow and with taylor still out his playing time is more secure he also made a ridiculous play at third base the other day that just made it was like oh look at you look at you justin turner pretty good so that's my uh boon of the week of the of the week
0: over to the mound how about an american league pitcher who could be a boon johnny freaking quato really but yeah i don't know he's pretty cheap
2: if he's still available on your wire in a 12 team league I just feel like he's the kind of guy that you could ride for a little while. I I, I don't, I'm not going to say that he's going to be great all the way through the season, but I, I say ride him till the wheels fall off.
0: I had him in my TGFBI team and I had to wave him because of a roster squeeze. And I was really sad about it at the time. And it's worse now. Uh, how about a National League pitcher who could be a boon?
2: Well, th- this is a little obvious, I think, but Luis Castillo the other day, watching him pitch against the Yankees, boy, he looked great. He just looks fantastic. So uh, I think if he's cheap by some measure, uh, you got to trade for him. You're not going to pick him up off the wire. But I think Luis Castillo is is setting himself up for a really good second half.
0: And, of course, a lot of expectation that he'll be doing it somewhere a little more productive than in Cincinnati. Let's go to our Baines uh, in the American League. Who's a batter you don't trust for the rest of the year?
2: I'm going to say a a favorite of mine, Adulis Garcia, is someone who – just based on what happened last year, right? Similar situation through the all-star break. Just, just, you know, remarkable player doing amazing stuff. And I was looking at him in one dynasty league. Do I want to trade for him? Should I trade for him? It's an OBP league, which makes it a little less valuable for him. Cause he's not great in that format. And I just, I just go, nah, I'm probably going to fade a little bit. Another possible uh, Bane is, is Jeremy Pena. He just, he looks a little lost to me when he's come since coming back from injury. And the league may have figured him out a little bit. So those would be my two guys.
0: How about a National League batter who could be a Bane? I'm
2: going to talk about Morel, Christopher Morrell. Um, he's the kind of guy that I might want to trade uh in a redraft league right now. Um he he could get you something because he's gonna bring the speed, but his playing time's starting to get a little bit scarcer, just a little bit. He's not hitting at the top of the lineup anymore. He's not playing every day. He's playing like four out of six, maybe five out of six. He's struggling a little bit still looks, but, but still a flashy, exciting player. You might be able to get somebody good for. So uh, Christopher Morel to a team that needs speed would be a guy that I've been looking to move
0: over to the mound again, an American league pitcher you think is a bane.
2: We talked a little bit about Jameson Tyone earlier. It's for me, it's Jameson Tyone. I just, I just don't trust him out there. I, I don't feel comfortable with him out on the mound. So uh, for me, it's Jamison Tyone.
0: And that was in the context of guys who just don't look like they're having a lot of fun or feeling very confident out there. That's right. And finally, how about a National League pitcher could be a bane?
2: I'm going to say Kenley Jansen. And, and it's really for health, right? I mean, it's really just a, a concern for him and that he his heart might not, you know, he's got to stay strong and uh, I wish him the best. But if if Jansen was my sole source of saves, I'd be a little nervous
0: right now. Indeed, Ian Kahn's Boons, Teoscar Hernandez of Toronto, Justin Turner of Los Angeles, Johnny Cueto of the White Sox, Luis Castillo of Cincinnati, his batter Baines in the American League, Adolis Garcia of Texas, uh, Jeremy Pena of Houston, uh, Christopher Morel of Chicago, Jamison Tyne of the Yankees, and Kenley Jansen of Atlanta. Remind us where listeners can keep up with Ian Kahn.
2: Sure, it's at IanCon4 on Twitter. I have an at IanCon, but that's the actor profile. You won't get any fantasy baseball on that side. And then uh, the Under the Radar podcast, uh, which is on the fantasy, on the athletic fantasy baseball podcast. Um, the Under the Radar show is Wednesdays. There are a lot of other shows in the feed, but our show is Wednesdays. I hope you guys will give it a chance. It's a it's a really fun show.
0: It really is a fun show. You guys have a very genuine and easy rapport with one another. And it really comes across in the show. I I really like it. I should tell our listeners that if you want to find it, don't search under the radar. It doesn't pop up. I tried it uh, once a (laughs) long time ago and there's a million podcasts called under the radar, but none of them is under the radar. So, uh, Ian, thanks a million for helping us out. I do appreciate it. And I hope we get to talk to you again real soon.
2: That'd be great. Patrick, it's a real thrill to be on Baseball HQ. Uh, as I said at the beginning, your show was kind of how I learned the game. So it's a, a, a real uh, honor to, to be able to share time with you. Thank you.
0: Ian Conn appears weekly on the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. We'll take a quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries. The frequent flyer and extra innings are coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But one more Baseball HQ item I wanted to mention is our Speculator column. In this edition, columnist Ryan Bloomfield moves on from horning in on my tout American League bids to horn in on Tanner Smith's pitch analysis work. Ryan looks at some pitchers who've made significant pitch mix changes during the season and how they've affected those pitchers' performances. Those and all the other items I've mentioned are only a few of literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, the roster forecasting and playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in the Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders in the categories, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business.
2: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. P.D. here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Arizona first baseman Leandro Sedeño is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky.
4: He's currently batting 302 with the team-leading 18 home runs for the AA Amarillo Saad Poodles, but perhaps one of those 18 home runs stands out far more than the rest. Quoting USA Today's Casey Elmore from Sunday, July 17th, 23-year-old first baseman Leandro Cedeno might not be concerned among the Arizona Diamondbacks' top prospects, but there will be plenty of buzz about him after Saturday night. So what's the buzz? Again, quoting Casey Moore, Sedanio on July 16, 2022, unloaded a towering 527-foot home run to center with an exit velocity of 113 miles per hour, the longest recorded home run in the StatCast era, according to MILB.com. Wow. To put that in perspective, only two Major League players, Nomar Mazzara and Giancarlo Stanton, have belted home runs over 500 feet in the StatCast era since 2015, according to USA Today. Still, Cedeno's 527-foot blast was considerably well short of Joey Meyers' record-setting 582-foot wallop in 1987, according to USA Today. Amazing! Even so, worth noting, prior to 2022's 18, Sedeno has never belted more than 14 home runs in a single professional season. That's why 23-year-old Arizona Diamondbacks first base prospect, Leandro Cedeno, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Once again, Sedanio is batting 302 for the Sod Poodles with 17 other home runs. However, what's likely to go unnoticed with all the home run buzz is that Cedeno's on-base percentage has improved dramatically in 2022, driven in part by almost doubling his 5.7% walk rate in 2021 to 9.9% in 2022. Remember, baseball's best batters will have walk rates above 10%, and Cedeno's 9.9% walk rate, if rounded up to 10%, would place him in that category, according to the tools and research available to you at BaseballHQ.com. Additionally, Cedeno is currently seeing 3.9 pitches per plate appearance, up from his career average of 3.3 pitches per plate appearance, where our research at BaseballHQ.com shows that batters that work deeper into the count, via pitchers per plate appearance, tend to display more power as measured by their Linear Weighted Power Index on BaseballHQ.com, further suggesting that Cedeno's power gains in 2022 may be sustainable. In other words, the underlying skills and yard work appear to support the buzzworthy, incredible power gains of 23-year-old Arizona Diamondbacks' first baseman, Leandro Cedeno is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about the changing environment of Major League Pitching. At the break, Major League teams had played 1,384 games. In all of those games so far, Major League teams have put 752 pitchers out there. That's about 44 per team across the full season. Now, it's hard to know what will be the pace of the arms cavalcade as the season moves along. On one hand, teams should have a solid idea of which pitchers they want to carry them the rest of the way, but on the other hand, the also might want to audition more guys, and contenders might be anxious to replace anyone with even a modest tough streak. In any case, 44 pitchers per team will dwarf what went on in the previous few years ignoring the short season, which we all want to do, right? The 2019 mark was 27.7 pitchers per team, and 2021 was 30.3 pitchers per team. So if 44.0 remains the same, it's a big jump, and even if it falls by quite a bit, it's still a big jump. One of the obvious results of how more pitchers per team affect the game is way fewer innings per pitcher, I talked about this a bit on our Tuesday special All-Star Break Roundtable edition, but let me rehash the high points and maybe add some details. In 2017, through about the same number of games, 638 pitchers had at least a third of an inning pitched. This season, as I mentioned, that number has shot up to 752. That's 18% more pitchers this year. And what about innings? Well, I'm glad you asked. In 2017, 59 pitchers threw 100-plus innings. This year, that 59 has shrunk to 36. And in 2017, 13 pitchers threw 120 or more innings. This year, three. I went on and classified pitchers as full-time starting pitchers if they had no more than three games that weren't starts and more than 70 innings pitched. That's about 125-inning pace for a full season. By that definition, there were about seven fewer full-time starters this year than in 2017, but innings by full-time starters are down 8% versus 2017, strikeouts are down 9%, pretty much in proportion, but wins by full-time starters are down 12% this year versus 2017. The bigger drops in wins might reflect more starters getting the early yank, and thus more wins moving to the bulk guys and the other relievers. So... We have more starters getting fewer innings, 53 and two-thirds per full-time starter then so far this year, 45 now. Fewer strikeouts, fewer wins. We might think that most of those stats are going to relievers, but when we look at the same stats using full-time relievers, that is, pitchers with no starts, we get a different idea. Innings, strikeouts, and wins are basically the same this year for relievers as they were in 2017. What we do have these days is more stats going to part-time starters. They've got some starts this year, but they've pitched less than 70 innings. They make up about the same percentage of all pitchers today as they did back in 2017, but their share of total innings is up 32% for part-time starters versus 2017. Their share of strikeouts is up 36%, and the share of wins by part-time starters is up 26% this year versus 2017. We have to assume that this trend is not going to change as more and more teams realize that the Tampa experiment is not only working as far as pitcher efficiency, but it's way more efficient financially. The $35 million or $40 million it costs for a season of Max Scherzer or Garrett Cole could legitimately pay the salaries of an entire staff of short-inning starters and reasonably decent relievers and putting together such a staff could leave a team competitive in the traditional starters' categories of strikeouts and especially, as we've seen, of wins. From the fantasy angle, as in real baseball, those Cole and Scherzer types will be ever more valuable and ever more costly, especially in fantasy leagues that don't adjust either the size of the pitching staffs or reduce the innings minimum. Even leagues that do reduce or even eliminate innings requirements will see the top starters retain a lot of value, because their sterling decimals will be even more impactful on a team context with fewer total innings. But again, the part-time starters could be a factor. In 2017, their ERA was a little over 5, not the kind of thing you want to throw out there regularly. This year, it's 47 points lower and under 5. Relief pitcher ERAs are down about 7 points from 2017 to now, and full-time starting pitchers are up about 22 points, although they remain a lot lower than the other two groups in ERA. I could go on, and by this time you're probably scared I'm going to, so let me leave you with this. The times, they are a-changin', and if we plan to keep playing season-length fantasy baseball, we need to start thinking now about how we're going to manage the strange new world as fantasy managers and as fantasy leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 22nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 29 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Ian Kahn from the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Ian is a prolific fantasy baseball media presence, a very successful fantasy manager in his own right, and as a partner, and as you heard, a most interesting guy with whom to have a conversation. I'm already looking forward to talking again with Ian. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the baseballhq.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Rudy Gamble from Ras Ball, plus all the usual great stuff. We'll have our National and American League news analysis, our Baseball HQ commentaries, and Rudy Gamble on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again on Friday, and for now, so long.